Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? I am Drew. Hey, hey, everyone. This week, we're continuing our ongoing monthly read of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. We will be reading Volume 9, titled Lala. So, yeah, Drew, let's uh, give them what for. Give them, give them the hell that you are ready to unleash upon them. That's uh, putting a lot of excess pressure on me that I wasn't ready for, man. I don't think <laughs> that I can unleash anything other than a bag of hot air. Uh, I think for some people, that could very well be a very specific kind of hell. So just Okay, be... okay. So, so for those of you who are sadists, <laughs> if you're listening to us on your headphones, turn up the volume right now. <sighs> 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 How's that? How's that? Uh, I definitely found that unpleasant. So okay, okay, you did something to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, go for well, it. Today, as my compatriot Albert stated, we are covering Volume Nine of Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin, titled Lala. This is a manga by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, and it's translated by Melissa Tanaka published in English in North America by Vertical. Before we get started with that, though, I do have some exciting Gundam news, and it's also Yasuhiko news, because as we're recording this now in mid-September, it's been announced that the feature film Mobile Suit Gundam, Kukuru's Doan's Island, is receiving a limited-time U.S. theatrical release on September 27th and 28th. And this is a movie that Yasuhiko himself directed. It's his return to Gundam after doing the OVA adaptation of his own manga. This film is a, an, essentially an extended version or extended adaptation of an obscure episode from the original first Gundam series. And it's, it's a story that wasn't actually included in the origin, it's a story that a lot of American fans probably haven't seen because when they originally brought it to America, it was notorious for having like poor production values. And the original director Yoshiyuki Tomino, he didn't want he didn't want it to be seen. So <laughs> it's kind of infamous. I, I've never actually seen that episode. I'm sure you could pirate it somewhere, but I don't really yeah. make the effort to do stuff like that. Um, but yeah, turns out Yasuhiko decided for whatever reason, uh, I don't know if it was his wish or the studio's wish, but he did uh, an adaptation, a film adaptation and expansion of that episode and uh, came out in Japan a few months ago, I think in June. So relatively quick turnaround for a U.S. release. Uh so yeah, September 27th and 28th, check your local listings. I'm kind of curious based on what you've told us. <laughs> so, you know, I'm still, I would consider myself a novice, an, an ignoramus to Gundam, uh, completely ignorant and ignoramical. Of you're, you're not Gundam. completely ignoramical <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you said. <laughs> Well, okay, okay. I'm, 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 I'm learning day by day, a little uh, bit by bit. So I, I, I've accumulated a little bit of knowledge here and there. So you know, you know what a char is. 
yeah, it's uh, yeah, a char. It's it's that like the toilet paper. <laughs> char and bounty, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was gonna say is based on what you've told us about this movie and its contents. Do, would it would it be fair to say that this is one of those um one of those things where maybe someone who considers himself a quote unquote true fan would would consume this sort of a maybe not the the remake of this story but the original one that you were just describing the is that something that you know only the true fans would would watch because you know it's part of uh yeah, the lore and Part everything. Part of the lore and all that. Yeah, the exactly. History. Yeah, and just the fact that it's infamous for not being aired in the U.S. I don't even think it's in the U.S. Blu-ray edition. I think that's oh. how strongly Tomino felt about it. I could be wrong. Right. I don't actually own those Blu-rays. Interesting. But uh, I've listened to other Mecca podcasts, and the the ones who are really serious about breaking down every episode do talk about that episode. They They somehow get their hands on it. Hmm. yeah and uh just for a little more context about the story it takes place during the period when white base is on earth so it could be a little side story you know how they spent a good amount of time uh traveling on the ship to get from location to location but the story is about them landing on an island and encountering a mysterious zeon soldier huh yeah okay that's uh, I mean, it doesn't really tell me too much, but yeah, I, I mean, there's a, there's there's something I guess intriguing about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing I was gonna ask was, uh, did you happen to come across any reviews of this uh, from Japan or from from people who've seen it already, like? Has it redeemed itself or, or, you know, have, have they found a way to tell this version of the story from, from based on what you've read or heard, uh, mm -hmm. you know, did they find a way to redeem this story is, is I guess what I'm asking. I think so. I haven't uh, looked at Japanese reviews cause I can't read Japanese, but Based on uh, some of the people I follow on Twitter who are pretty into Mecca and serious about Gundam, uh, well, um, English-speaking fans, they seem to have positive things to say about it. And I think one of the one of the Gundam podcasts that I do listen to, uh, one of those guys ended up buying the Japanese Blu-ray of it, and he seemed pretty high on it. So I'm oh. quite looking forward to this movie. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It does have a pretty zany, wacky sounding name. I mean, yeah, I it's a total Gundam name, Kukuru's Doan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's it feels like it's a mishmash of a bunch of random words, but yeah, it's not even that, words, just syllables. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You're right, right. But it it feels uh, uh like I I don't think that that necessarily sets the tone for whatever the movie is going to be about. For all we know, it could be you know the greatest a heartbreaking work of tragedy <laughs> yeah <laughs> there is a trailer online so yeah. you can look that up on youtube it's yeah gundam is just replete with very odd bizarre names that really do feel like somebody just chopped up a bunch of words 
and put all these half-formed syllables into a hat and just pull them out and combine them to create <laughs> names. <laughs> okay, okay. Sounds good. Well, that's good news for us. And if you've been listening to our Gundam episode, it's uh, something to add to your uh, consuming experience of the story. Um, something to look forward to. We're certainly looking. We're certainly looking forward to it because, you know, we're definitely going to check that out at some point. So, mm-hmm. there we go. Yeah. Okay, you ready to dive into Volume Nine? Let's do it. All right. So, just as a brief recap of the of where the previous volume ended, previous volume ends after the Battle of Odessa, which was a decisive victory for the Federation. They defeated the bulk of the Xeon forces on Earth, driving them off the planet for the most part. I'm sure there are still little pockets of resistance, but we don't really see them in in here. Uh, It's not really germane to our narrative. And after that battle, White Base heads back into space, which is where we begin Volume 9. Yep. Do you have any general impressions or any thoughts bef- you want to share before we really dive into each chapter? Uh, I guess my overall thought about this section was this is a pretty fast-paced uh, volume of the series. It's I think we're we're getting <laughs> to the point where you know they've already established and you know set up all the dominoes that they've needed to set up. Now, mm-hmm. uh, from this point forward, we're just going to reap the rewards in just bloody, bloody chaos and and drama, you know? <laughs> you seem pretty delighted at the prospect of bloody, bloody <laughs> chaos. <laughs> that's part of, uh, that's why I read things is I, 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 I am a mad god just sitting here. And, uh, you know, delighting in the turmoil of these characters. <laughs> uh, they are they are my playthings. It is, it is who I am. It is what I am. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. Did you have any thoughts or did you feel similarly or differently? I agree with you, man. Yeah, it definitely does feel like things are all being appropriately lined up for the dominoes to all fall. Having completed volume nine, you know, we're 75% through the story. So clearly uh, the buildup is going to explode very soon. And I think that rising tension is, is what makes it so exciting. You know, like you have that sense of anticipation to see where things will go and we've got all this backstory behind us that whatever ends up happening in the volumes to come you know we're there there's a certain expectation for things to play out and even perhaps an expectation for surprises to see if anything uh happens that you don't expect to see so i i think it's going to be uh pretty rewarding for you especially uh, as a first time reader of the series yeah absolutely like we we have 
sowed the seeds we've planted them we're we and now i'm just eating that sweet sweet you know sweet sweet fruit that's uh mm-hmm. that's been born from it so you know it's all good the I'm sweet all about fruit it, man. of gundam <laughs> yeah sweet literary fruit that's sweet right literary fruit meats <laughs> is it fruit or is it meat <laughs> or is it's, it impossible it's whatever it's whatever it's an, impo- it's an impossible burger it's del- it's delectable uh literary nuggets now now they're nuggets <laughs> you know what i haven't had in a while i haven't had dino nuggets those are great dude i was at costco today and i saw like a big bag of them on sale i was tempted to buy it but i i had so much stuff on me um that there were just things that i couldn't take with me a lot of stuff a lot of a lot of dead soldiers i had to leave behind you know oh man that's unfortunate yeah 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 but hey next time next time okay Uh, yeah so you ready for our section by section recaps and analysis commentary yep you got it let's okay hit it hard baby all right so as always the chapters in each volume are also labeled sections within the table of contents of the book for whatever reason so i might Use those terms, section and chapter, interchangeably here, but here we go. Section one, as White Base cruises through space, they are followed by Xeon ships. Sela and Slegger get in their core boosters while Amro is in the Gundam. Shar is in his command ship, trailing White Base at a safe distance, while his subordinate, Lieutenant Dren, leads a force of three ships, hoping to catch White Base in a pincer attack. As Sela prepares to launch, she thinks back to her last meeting with Shar in Jabro and how he told her to get out of the service and never board White Base again. The Xeon forces launch several Rickdom mobile suits and a massive battle ensues. White Base withstands and repels the attack. Amro manages to sink the enemy ships and soon White Base can continue on its way. Shar is still pursuing from a safe distance, but the danger has passed for now so this opening chapter was pretty action filled so not necessarily a whole lot of forward plot development but i think uh it's a good way to reintroduce us back to space because the story back in volume one started in space and now uh, we had a bunch of stories where they were uh on earth now our now our intrepid heroes have returned to space. It it was a little disorienting, I will say, because I think I was so accustomed to these stories where they were fighting over land masses and these territories, and then all of a sudden to see them in space, it I guess like I don't think I forgot that it was a space epic, but you know, <laughs> when when it's all of a sudden like that, it's like oh yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. a little jarring. Um, Whenever they have these mobile suit battles, all of a sudden, all these uh, mobile suits are flying from like any which way, any direction. There's no real terrain to kind of uh, give you a sense of uh, where they are uh, relative yeah. to other objects. Well, now that you mention it, it's kind of interesting um, that you mentioned that you brought that up because it reminded me of this old conversation I used to have with one of my English teachers where he was talking about the wrath of Khan 
and okay he was he was saying that throughout the course of so much star trek we were accustomed to these ship to ship battles where you know so much of the story is is told in a way where these ships meet each other in space face to face and then they just blast the crap out of each other and that's just kind of how we were accustomed to that sort of story storytelling and then he was uh my english teacher was gushing about wrath of khan and how oh, is this the, the same time... english teacher who had that copy of uh the tim sale comic he got signed i don't think he got it signed but i remember it, it is a, i think it's the same teacher that you're talking about because uh, i remember we were talking about it and um what did he say oh i think Oh yeah, now that I, uh, what he said was Tim Sale was a family friend. So Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So that's kind of sad now that I think about it. But but yeah. yeah, um what he was saying was the thing that was revolutionary about Wrath of Khan was it finally had this battle where it took into account that space had these three-dimensional planes cuz there was a scene where they came up from under them and blasted them, you know? And yeah. up to that point, they had never seen that. So it is kind of cool to think about how stories that take place in space give you that many areas of entry when you're talking about space combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it comes to Mecha, I'm curious, do you prefer to see action scenes set on earth or in space if i had to be perfectly honest Uh i would probably prefer to see it on earth i think as an animation it'd be cooler to see it in space because you get to really see yeah the the uh, acrobatics of it all right you get to see the the aerial ballet but reading it it I mean, reading manga, it's, it's, I guess it's just, it, it gives me one less thing to situate them to, uh, when, when I'm, uh, trying to process what I'm, what it is that I'm watching. So I, I do think reading, uh, having them do battle on terra firma is, uh, for me, it's preferable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think of that? Oh, makes sense. I think, I think that's a pretty normal view. I, I think I probably guess that most Mecha fans probably feel similar. I think I could be wrong. I haven't taken a survey or anything, but it is, it's definitely fun to see Mecha battles when they're using whether whether they're in some kind of urban environment or just out in in the forest or trees or whatever uh you know just the fact that there is a physical environment that they can interact with or use as cover or use to hide or launch surprise attacks or whatever there's it's it's kind of cool to see that And, and also the fact that being on earth uh it's I mean it's obviously harder to do I think as an animator because then you have to actually draw backgrounds you can't just have yeah. like a background of stars and blackness you actually have yeah. to draw like the environment 
So it, it's more work. But the other thing is that when you animate the the mecha, you have to consider how their weight uh, makes them move and look in gravity. Whereas if you're just drawing them in space, it's like you were saying earlier, you, you can just see them zipping and zooming around, doing acrobatic stuff. And you don't really yeah. uh, think too much about uh, the resistance or anything like that. But when you see them on solid ground then you kind of expect you know if, if if a giant machine has a a humanoid machine takes a step you expect there to be some kind of rumbling or you know it's gonna affect uh the ground that it stands on or steps on yeah, so yeah. you know little details like that make it pretty hard to to do really well done animated mecha fights set on earth yeah I will also mention one other thing that I, I guess is sort of a pet peeve of mine in terms of animation, which almost directly contradicts what I just said. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I do notice, and this is something that I've seen in like uh, animation quite a bit, where sometimes in order to, I guess, give the world more depth or to give more impact, uh, they're, uh, what they do a lot of the times is in battle scenes that take place on the ground, whenever someone gets hit, it always shows them flying into a wall or flying into something like, uh, you know, knocking stuff over, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I, I kind of get it that it's it's sort of a visual trick that's meant to, I guess triggers impact yeah exactly show you the impact of what's going on but there is something about that that irks me a little when i see it in cartoons wait why does that irk you i thought you enjoyed debris (laughs) i think it's because i see it all the time or, or i see it way too often and i just wish that people would innovate a little more uh in terms of just ways to show that that sort of impact yeah, I, I think I, I think it's gotten to a point where as I'm watching a show or something, I I, I even get to the point where I'm maybe predicting oh, the moment that it's going to happen, or I'm uh, sitting there uh, awaiting for for that moment where okay he's gonna punch him and this guy's gonna go flying into a wall and we're all supposed to marvel at how hard he hit him because he flew into a wall and look at how that wall crumbled on him it's it's yeah i do yeah i I think that's the thing that irks me about it i I would i just want them to to be a little more creative in showing that and it's it's almost to the point where if they don't show someone being punched into a wall or into a bunch of crates or something that is the thing that satisfies me more (laughs) it's weird you're you're a complex individual man i am i'm i'm just not satisfied with anything (laughs) (laughs) i want the battles to be on the ground so that i have a, a sense of their surroundings but i don't want you to hit them into walls and buildings and, <laughs> and crates because I'm tired of seeing it. <laughs> so if they if they fought inside a city, you want them to be polite enough to not damage or destroy any buildings? <laughs> uh, 
again, like I said, I I want them to show uh you know the destruction and the impact, but I just wish they'd be more I wish they'd be more clever about how they present it to us, you know? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. all. That's all it is. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's I don't get me either. <laughs> <laughs> You're a complex individual, man. What else is there to say? Yep. Yep. Uh you have any other thoughts on this opening chapter? No, I'm I'm good to move on to section two. Okay. So? One thing I did want to say about about it though was uh reflecting on it um as I read through it with a more analytical frame of mind, I did think that this chapter feels like uh it feels like Yaz wants to demonstrate and remind us that the white base crew have they're they're combat veterans now and they're 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 all everybody's getting better at what they what they're doing so uh you just see more confidence in everybody's fighting abilities more more uh yeah just confidence and the just getting it done aspect of it all you know like amro is just wiping out these capital ships and uh, Sela and Slegger are using the fighters and doing really well with those. And Mirai is piloting the ship and everything pretty much just goes off without a hitch. And it's, it, I feel like it's a good reminder to the reader that after all the battles that we've seen them go through, especially on earth, now they're, they're back in Bro. space. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, in a way, that's really more of their element because most of the people here grew up in space, if not all of them. So they're they're probably more at ease in a in a zero g environment, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. It's you're right. It's this first section doesn't really show us much except for allowing us to see them functioning as a well-oiled machine right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's 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 a good reminder um and yeah it, it does feel again kind of abrupt jumping into it r- with them like just good to go but um but it's like you said it, it it just feels like it almost feels like it's a it's af- after the events of the last book we're 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 in a new phase and and mm-hmm. we're, it's, it's almost like looking at this with looking at them with new eyes as as like you said as vetted combat uh you know veterans mm-hmm. vetted veterans <laughs> i like that you got the alliteration going on yeah yeah i well, I, I won't even say I tried. That was a complete accident, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Ready to move on? Yep. Section two. We start with a scene of Dozel Zabi in the Xeon stronghold known as Solomon, which is a large asteroid. He's learned that the Federation's main fleet is gathering at Luna 2, so he can't spare too many forces to chase after White Base, which is about to make port at side six, a neutral colony. He's also troubled to learn that Cassilia had taken Shar under her command after he had dismissed him. 
in the wake of Garma's death. On White Base, there's a scene where Bright discusses their mission with the crew, but when Kai questions the logic behind their orders, Bright says he doesn't know why they're going to Side 6 either, but he just follows the orders he's given. Before White Base docks at the space colony, inspectors request to board. We are introduced to Inspector Cameron Bloom as he discusses the terms and conditions. While he's on the bridge, we learn that he and Mirai have a history. He's quite excited to see her alive, and when he places a hand on her while she pilots the ship, Bright can't help but notice. Cameron, it turns out, is Mirai's fiance, but it was all arranged by their parents. He wanted her to stay out of the war, or he wanted to stay out of the war, so he joined the Colony Public Corporation on Side 6. Though Side 6 has some Xeon-leaning sympathies, the colony is officially neutral. Through diplomacy and capitalism, Side 6 sold to both sides and was enjoying an unprecedented period of prosperity. After the ship has docked, Mirai and Cameron have a chance to talk right outside White Base. Mirai doesn't seem too thrilled. Cameron wants her off the ship so she can be safe with him, but she's upset that he didn't personally search for her when war broke out, instead relying on others to look. When he gets a bit animated about her getting off the ship, Slugger comes over, plucks off Cameron's eyeglasses, and socks him in the face. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew are out in the city buying supplies. While Amro is out shopping with Fraubo, the three orphan kids, and some other crewmates, he sees his father walking out of a bookstore. After a frantic chase, he finally catches up to his dad. Strangely, his dad seems somewhat un- unenthusiastic to see him, and the first thing he asks Amro is how the Gundam is running. Amro is a bit bewildered, but follows his dad to his home, which seems to be next to a junkyard. Temray excitedly gives Amro a piece of random junk telling him it'll improve the Gundam's performance. Amro is initially perplexed, but then realizes his dad suffered brain damage as a result of the hypoxia he experienced all the way back when our story began. It's obvious that his mind isn't working right, and after Amro leaves, all he can do is throw the junk on the ground and cry. Thoughts, Albert? One of the first things that jumped out at me in this section was the the introduction of Cameron Bloom. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so much of the series is about introducing all these characters and then, you know, we don't necessarily expect them to all have their backstories played out or whatever, but um, to have this guy introduced and have it be revealed that he is Mirai's um you know fiance fi- well, yeah I, I, I that's that's the right term right I mean they they agreed to be wedded to each other yeah yeah uh, she okay. meant she mentions it in one of the previous volumes but it was so long ago I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you had forgotten it it right, was just right. like a little bit of throwaway dialogue during a scene so it's kind of yeah. funny to see it actually come back into play here yeah it's it's unexpected, right? Mm-hmm. So for for this to to finally bear fruit, it's it's interesting to to watch that dynamic now because again, if we're if we're tracking along the lines of how much um, this 
conflict has changed everybody like the you know we we don't we haven't really seen too much of her in her life as a civilian before uh white base but you know we we've, we've received snippets here and there and this is another peek into what that life was like and you know again i don't know that they were necessarily like crazy about each other or madly in love or whatever but um she's she's clearly a different person now than she was then right and mm-hmm. um i don't know i don't remember if it was uh in this section or in the next one but at one point um you know you get the feeling that she she might still have some sort of feelings for him but he just i don't know how else to put this but he's just kind of disappointing as a man (laughs) (laughs) dude you said that right when i was uh getting a sip of water (laughs) Because he is, <laughs> he is, man. It's 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 kind of rough. Um, Why, know, this... dude? He has a job. What's the what's so disappointing about him? <laughs> um, again, I don't know if it's quite in this section, but it just feels like she's surrounded by all these soldiers, and um, at some at one point, uh, either in this section or in the next section, he says something like, "I sent people out to look for you," and her response is something along the lines of. Oh, you didn't come look for me yourself? You sent people out to look for me? Yep, that's that's in this chapter. Yeah. That's on page 59. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, my hero. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you were able to find the courage to tell people to come look for me. <laughs> uh, that's great. Super heroic. <laughs> I can only wish that I had that kind of courage. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, me, me being me, there, there is a part of me that feels bad for the dude a little bit, because I'm sure his feelings for her are genuine, but he's, I, I think there's a tendency for everyone to want to be the hero of their story and to think that given a certain situation or a certain set of circumstances, they would do the noble heroic thing. And mm-hmm. I do feel like more people would be like Cameron than we would expect in real life. Yeah. I, I do think that's, you know, whether it's good or bad or however you want to look at it, it's, it's more of a realistic response for a lot of people. Um, you know, un- unfortunately we're v- very comfortable in our lives and it's rarely often that we're confronted with um these levels of tragedies or uh tests and you know sometimes when you're not expecting it and in that moment uh when 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 the time comes for you to stand and do what you need to do it's not necessarily immediate to everyone to do the heroic thing because Mm -hmm. again it, it it doesn't it's not necessarily something that comes to second nature but um but I will say this, Cameron Cameron does have some redeeming qualities, uh, even if this initial introduction of him isn't necessarily one that puts him in the best light. Mm-hmm. What did yeah. you think about that scene when Slugger socks him in the face? 
uh there's a part of me that as as the reader feel felt like i wanted to be he was a stand-in for me in that moment because there again there's something about cameron that's frustrating in how (laughs) maybe maybe that's that's what it is right it's it's that thing where in him i see enough of myself where I can go there for the grace of God, go I. And there's a part of me that just wants to smack him for not being the uh, picture perfect hero that he, that we want him to be or that we believe him to be, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Hey, but you know what? Um, in addition to that, there there is a part of me that feels for Bright too. Like we we get the impression that he's got some sort of feelings or something for Mariah in this scene. And, uh, you know, he, he tries to be a, a tough guy about it, doesn't want to admit anything, but, you know, that's, that's, that's a rough place to be when you, you kind of have these feelings for someone and uh, you meet their fiance. So, yeah, yeah, that, that hurts. Yeah. So maybe I did want him to get punched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, man. You are a bright fan. I am. I am. He see. So, uh, it just gave me more of a reason to like him. Did you yeah. th- before before this chapter? Did you think that there was something between Bright and Mirai? Actually, I didn't. I don't think it had occurred to me at all. But mm-hmm. just based on his reaction, uh, well, I guess <laughs> I guess the funny thing is it, it's a ship where realistically speaking i mean there are definitely more women on it than than you would expect but their population is only limited by so much right so yeah there there is a part of me that looks at it and goes uh like <laughs> is, is are these real feelings or is it just because she just happens to be around <laughs> <laughs> dang I'm i'm a bit cynical uh, just that, that's a pretty uh harsh thought yeah yeah hey but um you know it's 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 an interesting uh uh i guess curveball to to throw in there and i yeah i i don't know i i, I don't spend all my time looking at characters and trying to ship them with other people so <laughs> that's not that's not how i consume my entertainment that's not um, the kind of fan you are it, it really isn't so i'm i'm willing to wait and see how this plays out um there you know what it did remind me of though watching watching that moment it it kind of did remind me of um Giren. is Giren the the kind of the doofusy one the doofusy one is dozel Okay, okay. It reminded yeah. me of Dozel and how he he ends up with with his chick. You know, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's not necessarily the most uh ideal way to be with someone, or um, you know, the the most ideal way to show or exhibit your your feelings for another person. But there is something kind of clumsy and kind of endearing about it, nonetheless. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's total uh fantasy and fiction man because 
if clumsiness could possibly be endearing, <laughs> then uh, we wouldn't be single right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that uh, Gundam is a thinly veiled biography of us. <laughs> well, every anime, every... <laughs> Everybody, or, or I do think there's a large swath of fans who consume anime with the belief that they are a stand-in for the mains in those stories. Um, <laughs> there's a reason why isekais are as popular as they are. <laughs> That's true. But the truth is, is that we're all just Cameron Bloom. Yeah. We're Ooh, getting socked wow. in the face every day. Wow. That, that was a nice way to bring that home. I like that. I like that <laughs> quite a bit. That was... Uh, woo. Okay, okay. Good job, good job. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I I think you've succinctly uh stated it in a way that aligns with my point of view also, so I don't really have okay. too much more to add about about the uh whole Mirai Cameron Slegger Bright situation. It's it's pretty interesting to see though that there's a a little bit more character uh, drama or melodrama, however you want to put it, uh, in this chapter, because I feel like so much of of uh, what we have been reading up to this point, there it doesn't really, it it usually doesn't feel like there's too much romance of any sort, really, other than like little bits and snippets of things like what you mentioned uh, with Dozel and yeah. him meeting his wife, but. Uh, for the most part, it it really does feel like romance has been on the back burner because everybody's just too busy fighting for their their lives. Well, I do. Well, okay, I, yeah. I'm, part of me wanted to say that that probably is a more accurate representation in wartime, but I, I don't even know if that's the truth. I mean, even even in in times of conflict like this it does feel like people still find a way to mm-hmm. resume their lives to some degree um, i suppose you can make the argument that when your lives are at stake every day then there's even more urgency to uh never hesitate or you know yeah just make the most of it yeah see you've articulated exactly what the problem with our lives is is that the women that are in our lives aren't in a constant state of danger where they realize that we're the best option for them we don't even have to be the best option as long as we're the only option for them (laughs) that's what matters (laughs) exactly i need to find a woman who's in a constant state of terror because that will make her realize that i'm the right thing for her (laughs) exactly come on come on why is it so hard (laughs) that's uh that's rough that's that is rough uh yeah so should we um the the other section uh that was involved in this was amro's story and that's Mm -hmm. that was something that was um pretty pretty heartbreaking in its own right uh just he you can tell that he's someone who was never very close with his parents, even in the snippets that we've seen in the past. Um, yeah. You know, his dad was just kind of a workhorse and, you know, someone who was completely dedicated to his work. And it's crazy to see that even now um, in his condition as someone who has 
suffered this debilitating uh, disorder due to a medical disorder that has left his mental state diminished, right? Um, even in spite of that, his it's not like he's reevaluated his life and became a kinder, loving, more loving father or anything like that. He's there's still a part of him that still wants to that still believes himself to be a genius. And yeah. it's it's that whole um flowers for Algernon phenomena where, you know, he he isn't a complete dribbling mass but he's still smart enough to know to remember what it was like to when he was really smart Mm -hmm. and it's it's painfully tragic and and it's even more painful watching amuro deal with it because again it's it's not like he was ever close to his dad uh and when you saw the the pieces of his relationship with his mom he wasn't really close there either Uh, it's you would think that under circumstances of war people who come home to their families would be elated um but i guess what we're seeing here is um the 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 tentacles of war far surpass the the immediacy of of the uh damage that is done in 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 the moment of conflict right like it, mm-hmm. it it goes well beyond those moments um yeah it 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 did really make me think and not to uh uh diminish like real world circumstances but I was uh, watching the news this week about uh, how the Ukrainians have seized seized a large portion of territory in Russia, and there's this one scene uh, where you mean, this guy uh, back from Russia, back from Russia, yes, yeah. back from Russia, and there's this one scene where one of the Ukrainian soldiers uh, that re-entered this one territory that they retook, he his family was was there his mother and his father had stayed behind under uh russian occupied uh uh ukraine and they they entered the city and i was just watching uh this son be reunited with his mother and father and they were just over overwhelmed with joy to to like see that they were all alive and that they had this Mm -hmm. moment to be together and yeah this 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 scene just kind of reminds you that not everybody gets that you know it's yeah it's not it's not a foregone conclusion that everyone gets a happy ending and if anything the uh the consequences of war far uh yeah far outlive that it's it's a powerful scene that the that that was uh, portrayed here and you know just w- watching it end with amuro just like breaking this piece of junk in frustration you, you can't help but yeah the the very last two panels just him like sobbing as he just stands there in the dark over this broken piece of junk. Yeah. Like it hurts, man. Yeah, it really does. It's one of those things where I almost wonder if Amro had kind of made peace with the situation before. Cause I think I would guess that uh, this whole time he probably thought his father died in that explosion when he got sucked out of the, the colony back in you know 
what like one of the early chapters of the of the story yeah and uh now it's like he sees him he's amro sees his, his dad and he's almost he's he's basically overjoyed you know he's like like you were saying earlier they didn't have necessarily a close relationship from all the snippets that we've seen of them in the flashbacks and whatnot but the fact that amro was excited and he ran after his dad and and chased him when he got on a bus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it really does build up this uh i guess an expectation, expectation. for like yeah. a joyous uh reuniting of the two of them and and then to see it play out in this you know quietly sad almost pathetic sort of way it's mm. it's pretty heartbreaking it, it, yeah it it feels like that probably seeing his dad like that probably hurt him more than just thinking that his dad died in the explosion yeah. back then. Yeah. It it set up his expectations only to have them dashed and with the reality that he did lose his father. Um, it's almost like he could have told himself that if his father had died, he would have the memory of his father the way he was, right? Yeah. But since he doesn't have that, he has this living reminder of what they did take from him, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah, it's. But again, that's just kind of the tragedy, the reminder of how like tragic war can be. In that, not everyone, not everyone, everyone assumes that death is the worst thing, and sometimes it it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's very well done. Mm-hmm. Ready for section three? Let's do it to it. Okay. After another long day, Bright returns to the bridge of White Base. To his surprise, he finds Mirai there, fixing up one of his frayed uniforms. They're able to have a long conversation about their current situation, Cameron Bloom, and the war. Bright comments that he, too, would love to have a happy, regular life but he's too socially awkward. Gauche is the word he uses for that to happen. After he leaves the bridge, Mirai considers his words and says, that you are, no kidding. Amuro goes back to visit his dad, and Temre is overexcited about the Gundam. It's a tough, uncomfortable moment when they say goodbye. As Amro drives away, he reflects back on his on the last day at Side 7 when he was dragged into the war. And even then, his lasting image of his father was that of a man who prioritized the Gundam above all. While Amro is driving, the colony's weather is set to rain. His car doesn't have a roof, so he pulls over and takes shelter in the doorway of a nearby house by a lake. It's a peaceful moment, all things considered, and he even has a chance to admire a lovely swan flying around. After some time, he notices that there's a girl sitting on the porch on the other side of the home. It's Lala Soon, the girl that Shar rescued back in the flashback arc. The two of them start to chat, and when the rain stops, the sky looks absolutely beautiful. Lala gets up and frolics through the grass straight into the lake. Amaro is dumbstruck. So, tell me something, Albert. Did you forget about Lala before you picked up Volume 9? 
Uh, I think I remembered her being in the books, but I didn't really remember too much about her otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the the one thing that I remembered was she met Shar like way way back, mm-hmm, right when he was on Earth. Yeah, yeah. So, but I don't really remember the finer details of what their relationship was like even then, uh, other than. I think didn't he save her? no I uh okay didn't he save her from uh some sort yeah. of gangsters or something like that yeah she was essentially like a slave of some guy who was using her for her psychic abilities to win at Gamble. little gambling games yeah yeah, yeah 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 okay okay see I, I, mm-hmm. I needed a little kickstart but I I I, I it, it was in there it was mm-hmm. in there mm-hmm. yeah yeah um. I, I guess even then there was a part of me that knew that well okay one from what I remember they they kind of ended her when they the last time we see her it sort of ends on not not quite a cliffhanger but it, you know it it just doesn't really tell you what happens to her right like yeah they, I think there's a line her. of dialogue that where Shar yeah. says that uh he's gonna take your summer safe in space Mm -hmm. so they commit a pretty good amount of time to her in this story and then she disappears for a good portion of it Mm -hmm. and so even even at the time uh of reading that portion of the story where she's first introduced there's there's a part of me that knew that oh um she, she has to come back at some point Mm-hmm. Yeah, like right. why would they introduce a character in the flashback arc? And, yeah, you know, devote so much attention to her and then not do anything with her. That wouldn't make sense. Yeah, right. Uh, unless it was explicitly done in that story to communicate uh, a theme or an idea or something. But but yeah. the way that it was played out, you you could tell that they were building up to something with her. But yeah, so. You know, seeing her again after all this time, I, I will admit that I didn't remember off the top of my head everything about her. But talking to you now, um, it, it's all coming back. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, but I don't remember specifically what what his plan for her was. I I don't think they explicitly said what his plan for her was, but I don't even remember if they even implied what his plan for her was. But. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's quite telling that uh Yasuhiko decided to use the color pages at the end of the chapter to highlight her first meeting with Amro. Like there's it feels like that's intentionally done to like draw attention to it and it's it's also just really beautiful coloring. Like the the way that he draws the scene after the the rain stops, and even though they're in a colony, they've got like this artificial climate system, I guess. So there's still, uh, I don't know, some kind of generated or artificial light source or sunlight. I don't know if it's really sunlight or if it's being reflected into the colony or what, but there's a like kind of a rainbow effect, and it it's really ethereal, and like the way that Yaz just draws her on the grass heading into the water almost looks like she's just floating there it's almost uh like a 
like the manic pixie dream girl or whatever you call yeah. it you know yeah. it's strange it's super graceful uh mm-hmm. the way that they draw her too um it's it's good not contrast but i guess it, it it's good when it runs in parallel with that swan yeah idea of just her her movements being just so swift that's right yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you what did you make of Amro's encounter with her? Uh I honestly didn't know what to make of it other than oh she's back and I guess I think from a meta perspective I was thinking this is this is where this domino piece finally comes into play and we're going to see what Yaz is going to do with her. Um, it, it doesn't really tell us too much uh, about, because again, her introduction is, is just um, this, this moment that she shares with Amaro at this house. Mm-hmm. But, but again, uh, it, it, it's, it's that slow burn of setting up expectations because this is the moment where she's back and it's just a matter of, okay, where do we go from here? And how is this going to either, you know, end well or end badly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's going to end well or end badly? Uh, well, seeing as how I, I, I mentioned already that I'm a mad God who likes to dance <laughs> on the graves of uh, fictional characters. Uh, I can only imagine that it ends in the worst way possible. <laughs> in my ideal version, it's a uh, you know Titus Andronicus or something. <laughs> Someone's gonna get cooked into a pie and Dang. and served to their parents. Dang. <laughs> Spoilers if you haven't read Titus Andronicus. <laughs> uh, oh man. Yeah, it. I do also want to say that the pacing for the whole sequence when Amro, like from the page that Amro gets into the Jeep uh, on page 101 and it starts raining and then he gets to the house and then he meets her for the first time and then the rain stops and then she goes into the lake. Like that whole scene is just such great artwork. Uh, there, There's a pretty minimal amount of dialogue, but it feels so rare to have such an extended scene where the artwork is doing so much to to show us the story you know like it it feels like the story has so much room to breathe and it's just luxuriating in this slow pace where we can literally stand there with amro and enjoy the raindrops you know it's like right. man he really took his time developing that whole scene but on some level it also there's a way to look at it where this is the calm before the storm yeah that's true man that is very true because this is this is a moment of peace that these two characters are sharing um and we know that just based on their backstory that she has a connection to shar and you know in this moment they're not they're not at each other other's throats. They're not enemies. They're they're just two people sharing uh, a moment with each other. Mm-hmm. But 
knowing what their connections are, knowing, um, you know, who their connections are with, it, it doesn't take much to imagine that it's there, there's something boiling that's going to eventually come to a head between these two. Between I, I mean, Amaro and Lala? Uh, or Amaro yeah. and Char? Amaro and Lala and Char. You know, it, it only makes sense that in some way they're going to collide with one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a reasonable uh, assumption to make. Yeah. Just based on uh, again the the just based on the the, the dynamics of their relationships. Uh, you know, regardless of whether they personally like each other or not, um, mm-hmm. they're they're their their status is is the thing that's going to ultimately drive whatever happens yeah yeah you want to talk about section 4 let's go for it okay rear admiral konskon and his zeon forces are at the edge of side 6's airspace waiting for white base to leave port bright tells the crew that they will be in for the fight of their lives once they leave Cameron comes aboard and tells the crew that the colony authorities want them to leave by the end of the day, though it means sailing straight into the waiting firepower of the enemy. However, Cameron selflessly offers to escort White Base out, essentially serving as a human shield. Bright is grateful, but Mirai takes umbrage, questioning his motives and telling Cameron that they don't need his meddling. It's an awkward moment in front of everyone present, and eventually, Slugger comes over and slaps Mirai in the face. Everyone is shocked. This time, Slugger insists that Cameron is serious about her because he's willing to risk his life to protect the ship she's on. Amuro misses the drama as he enters the bridge when people start to file out. Bright grants him two hours to say goodbye to his father, but Amuro is more interested in seeing the girl again. He drives back to the house where he met her, but finds that it's closed and nobody is home. He begins driving back to White Base, and his car gets stuck in some mud. Another car drives past, sees his plight, and stops. Dressed in his full regalia, Shar comes out. It's their first face-to-face meeting. Amro recognizes him immediately, but Shar doesn't realize Amro is the Gundam pilot. He thinks Amro is just a young Federation soldier. Lala was driving the car, and Shar asks her to help him get Amro's car out of the mud. At that point, Amro finally learns Lala's name. After they converse while Shar and Lala get his car out, Amro immediately zooms off. Shar muses how odd the encounter was, and Lala says that that Federation boy was just intimidated by the famous red comet mm. so mm. yeah two really big things happening here with the encounter on the bridge between yeah. uh cameron and mirai and slugger and then of course the meeting between amro shar and lala at the end yeah yeah so we talked about earlier about cameron and how you know he he probably 
is more in line with most people and how they would respond to a situation where their loved ones are in danger, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, probably, you know, it's something that we don't want to admit, but um, yeah, that's that's probably a more normal response. But the thing is, here, this is the moment where he kind of redeems himself. Um, at least in my eyes, I won't speak for anybody else. But okay, he redeems himself in your eyes. That counts for something, man. So, yeah, would you marry yeah. him? I I wouldn't because I'm not attracted to men. There's okay. nothing wrong with that, but you know that's just not you know, it's not uh where my boat floats. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, to to see again, there's there's clearly this conflict between the two of them where Mirai probably has already established in her mind what her expectation of this guy is, and for him to, I guess in her view put his life in danger for you know essentially for her even though she he's doing it quote unquote for everybody like it, it's that thing where once once your feelings are a certain way and someone's still trying to ingratiate themselves to you the more effort that you put into it sometimes the more you know uh the more annoyed off. they get at you. Yeah, the more annoyed they get by you, the more put off they are by you. And and yeah, it's 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 a moment where their personal relationship interferes with the I guess the bigger things that are going on in, in their world. And mm-hmm. then for Slugger to come in and I don't know if he well, I guess there's a part of him that is sticking up for for Cameron, but I, I wanna say that from a more practical pragmatic level i think he understands that we need this guy to escort us out of here to buy us the time otherwise <laughs> we're dead you know um so you think you, but do you think that's his primary motivation in slapping her uh that's the thing i i've 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 kind of rolled it around in my head and i i've contemplated it and it's yeah, the, he when he slaps her, he does. What does he say? He 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 says, he's essentially trying to tell her this is real. This, yeah, you know, what, page one twenty nine. Yeah, right. But I don't know. Maybe the subtext of it is, you know, the cruel calculus of war is that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, to the emotions of two people don't amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a little bit of Casablanca for you guys, right? <laughs> But yeah, it's it's it's. If I were more of a romantic, I would say yeah, Slug, Slugger is probably doing it to you know, to 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 build this guy up, and you know he's 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 he slapped her because he believes in the power of love, and you know this guy, he he might not necessarily believe that this guy is gonna win her back, but. He's he's telling her, hey, like this dude's sincere in what he's doing. So, and, and that is at least in my view of him, the that is the thing that redeems him is that. Again, I don't know if he's necessarily doing it just for her or if he's 
because because it does feel like there's a lot of things going on here there there's mm-hmm. the sense that he's doing it to redeem himself in her eyes but there's also the sense he's doing it to redeem himself as a person right as someone mm-hmm. who's set out this war like their entire colony is this neutral colony and that's just permeates this guy's ethos is this i don't want to get involved and yeah he's he's shamed because one he does lose this girl for not being you know the the quintessential hero archetype but there's also the sense that he's shamed because he's seeing these people who who are going out and really risking things and it's a question of maybe it's all these things right mm-hmm. maybe maybe it's not just him trying to get the girl but it's all these things and again if people are really as complex as that 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 makes more sense to me uh, as opposed to just assigning one one only one thing to be his motivation in that moment right right yeah so yeah. That's so a i good think breakdown. so i do think there's like multiple ways to look at cameron here multiple ways to look at his complexity and multiple ways to i guess view his redemption uh because he is kind of redeemed on on multiple levels here right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah do you think yeah. that slegger was out of line for slapping mirai oh uh, again this is this is a, a thing where maybe he's a stand-in for the reader where you know sometimes there are moments in in any work of fiction where you're just so frustrated by by how people act and it might be understandable it might even be realistic but there's there's a part of you that just wants to grab someone by the shoulders and say look i know that you think this is about you right now but you know one he he's trying to do the best that he can right and two why do you got to give the guy such a hard time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing I, I wanted to mention was, yeah, there's there's that sense that I, I mentioned earlier that most of us wouldn't necessarily immediately jump into the hero role. But I think the real heroic thing is, you know, given an opportunity, given the clarity of mind to, to do the right thing, um, you know, it's easy for a lot of people to to imagine someone with the instincts and the courage to immediately do something heroic. But I think to a lesser degree, we, we don't really think about it very often when people, again, have their, um, have their survival instincts on and still choose to go against that. Yeah. We don't recognize that as heroic quite as much because... Oh, this guy exhibited a moment of fear and cowardice. That's not heroic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he could go and die for me, but that split second where he was momentarily afraid, like, I don't respect that. I don't respect know? people who feel fear. Yeah. <laughs> All my heroes were idiots. <laughs> they just walked <laughs> into it. <laughs> I mean, talking about it now, it does remind me of that one scene from Age of Ultron where, um, Clint Barton is with Scarlet Witch and they're just kind of uh, hiding out and Scarlet Witch is freaking out. She's afraid because 
mm-hmm. you know, she's not really a hero. She's got powers, but she's not really a hero. And Clint Barton's just like Hawkeye is, is like talking to her and trying to build her up. And he goes, "Look, if you're fa- afraid, stay in here, and that's okay. Someone will come back and get you when this is all over. But if you go out there, you're an Avenger, and that's." You know, that's got to be like hands down one of my favorite scenes in the movie is her going out there and like realizing they need me now and it's time to step up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so there we go. Would it it have been better if Clint Barton slapped her in the face? Probably. If he had just grabbed her by the shoulders and just shook her and he was like, get it together! Get it together! <laughs> uh, yeah. These two scenes that we've had with Slugger and Mirai and Cameron... It just feels think... like he's constantly slapping people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all he does. <laughs> you, do you think I, he's just emblematic of toxic masculinity or is this just a cultural thing that, uh, you know, it's there's nothing like no real more subtext to it beyond beyond just seeing him slap people that is an interesting question to propose um i don't know like i don't that's the thing i i wonder i question whether what he did was truly like what i would consider toxic masculinity cuz there there is and and maybe some people will disagree with this but um intent does matter to some degree and i think his underlying ethos and his i guess what he represents uh does matter in in this instance right because there's a there's a version of this character who's just an absolute meathead without any redeeming values who Mm -hmm. just is belittling to everyone around him and you know constantly talking about how that's not very manly of you we're men here we you know like if if anything like the the toxic masculinity masculinity version of slugger would be the one who would be ridiculing cameron for not being heroic right Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. for for being this uh neutral bystander for being a part of this neutral bystander colony like I don't think there's any amount of um, this guy is willing to fly out there as a decoy for us that's going to redeem him in his eyes because, the again, the toxic masculinity version of Slugger would be like, well, we're the ones actually going out there fighting and killing guys. If you were a hero, you'd go out there and kill somebody because that's what mm-hmm. man does. So I don't think he is uh, what I would consider a... Uh, uh, a toxic uh, an, an example of toxic masculinity um but, but what about uh what he says to cameron right after he says what he says to mira after he slaps her he, he he yells at her a bit and then he looks at cameron puts his hand on cameron's shoulder and says and you you too are you gonna let her prattle on just like that and just listen <laughs> and then he says did you have to hit her and he says slugger says if you care you should be able to <laughs> and Cameron's just like, how barbaric. Uh, you know what? That was the line that got me. I had to read that a couple times. <laughs> but I don't, if you care, I don't think... you should be able to. 
but I don't think that's the sort of thing that's necessarily reserved for at least in my reading of it it's not something reserved for it's not a statement about specifically about women where it's like well sometimes you kind of have to right like I didn't read it that way I, I, I think the way I read it was there are people in your lives where sometimes you just gotta you know give them hard truth truths right you gotta just mm -hmm. snap them out of it and yeah it'd be different if he had like hit her with a closed fist or something like that then i'd be like okay that's not you know that's <laughs> the backhand like... is okay <laughs> uh... if he had like thrown a bunch of haymakers that obviously would have been wrong <laughs> <laughs> you know like i don't <laughs> Uh, but you are making me think of that one Sean Connery interview where, yep, um, yep. you know, this lady was interviewing Sean Connery and she was like, are you saying it's okay to hit a woman? And his response was like, well, sometimes you have to schmuck, you have to schmuck some sense into them. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm not saying that that's the case, but uh, I, I do think there's a certain type of person who doesn't necessarily know how to articulate themselves or exhibit whatever their feelings in the best way and i also do think that there are times where we do need to to have a little bit of reality like mm -hmm. I, I guess what i would say is one read the room be able to tell that the kind of person that you're doing this to isn't is or isn't the kind of person that you can kind of give a tap to <laughs> and... <laughs> wow <laughs> What are you saying? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, sometimes if someone if someone had hit me, like, in a moment where I, I just needed, like, to, to, to firm myself up, I think I'd be okay with it. As long as it wasn't, like, you know, super as hard, as, I guess. As long as it didn't give you a concussion? <laughs> exactly, right? Like, if someone was, if someone, like, just smacked me in the back of the head, you know, like, hey, man, get it together. I don't. I, I won't speak for anybody else, but at least for me, that's something where I can be like, "You're right. You're right. I needed. I needed something to jar me out of whatever I was in the middle of at that moment." But, uh -huh, uh -huh. but yeah, like, I guess generally speaking, I would say don't hit a woman. <laughs> that's yeah. That's probably yeah. don't assume that there's a woman out there that you can don't hit, hit slap, <laughs> push, kick, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't just don't. Right. Yeah. You can be. You can be. Uh, uh, blunt with a person, and uh, I think that can serve to be just as jarring at times. Uh, when when you're so blunt that it takes them aback and gets them to, and and mind you, you can be blunt, but don't be crass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Good a advice. difference. Yes, but there we go. The other thing I really like about this whole scene is how Yasuhiko really sells us on the awkwardness with all the characters in the background. Just looking at their facial expressions and their body language throughout the whole scene, once Cameron comes on board and, and starts his spiel and, you know, Mirai and Slugger uh, come into the scene, like seeing everybody else's reactions is that's some that's some good cartooning right there. Mm, mm, mm. I like it. Yeah. There's also the the second big thing that you talked about here, which was um, 
which is kind of a huge thing. It's it's yeah, it's pretty big. It's it's that moment in that's when done well in a lot of stories where it's the height of tension, where mm-hmm. your two adversaries finally meet for the first time, and you as the reader know that oh, if this was any other situation, uh, you know, if all the if if things had just gone a certain way, or if one bit of information uh was to be revealed right now at this moment it could end it all right mm-hmm. so it's it's the moment where Shar and amaro meet for the first time and up to this point they've battled each other uh you know here and there in in their mobile suits and uh for amaro obviously Shar is not necessarily the existential threat to to the federation but he recognizes Shar as one of the big names as mm-hmm. as a threat uh one of the main threats to if not the federation to him and white base definitely yeah. Right? yeah so it's it's a moment that plays around with the fact that these two they're not in their mobile suits they are facing each other uh you know in person and it just ratchets up the tension for you because you know, Shar is obviously in his costume, so Amro obviously knows who he is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and they're they're just like downright cordial with one another. Shar's again uh, under different circumstances. Shar would be a pretty charismatic, you know, maybe even likable dude uh, who, who's just kind of cheeky, uh, but. Uh, because... he, I feel like he comes across as really cheeky in this scene because every time you see his face when he's talking to Amro, he's got this smirk, you know, like he knows that that Amro is nervous, yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. just acting, and Shar is just acting super casual and and over almost overly yeah. helpful, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. It's I mean, like it's he's bad just enough. eating this up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's bad enough that Amro is in his Federation uniform, so when Shar is out there, he already knows that. Shar already has enough reason to kill him right there on the spot, even yeah. if he doesn't know that he's the mobile, uh, that he's the Gundam pilot, right? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of just uh, anxiety being ratcheted up in that moment, but mm-hmm. but there's something about that where he's not being menacing to him, where he's like you said, he's just being casual. That if if this was a different scene where he just came up and was helping him to pull his car out of the mud, um, he'd be, he'd just be like this kind of quirky eccentric dude. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's again, the, the, just the tragedy of war is just that, you know, people that might not be enemies under dis- different circumstances are put into these positions where they're forced to kill each other and hate each other. If it weren't for the war, there could have been a world where Amro and Shar could have been automotive off-road buddies. <laughs> they could be into like off-road racing or something, helping each yeah. other. Yeah, <laughs> and then they could like uh, do that thing where they like he throws out his hand and then Shar grabs it and they're, they're just kind of like flexing their muscles as they like, you know, <laughs> they're like, yeah. And he's like, Shar, 
you son of a bitch and then like they just <laughs> you know grab arms with each other and just flex and they're like and then eventually one of them's like okay you got me you win again <laughs> <laughs> and then they just kind of laugh it off that sounds like predator that was a scene from predator that was okay. definitely a scene from predator <laughs> Uh, that was uh, Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger, but in my mind, it was Char and Amr. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, Did you That's enjoy great. the uh, tension in that scene? I thought it was really well done. I've seen it in the anime, and in the anime, it, it was definitely one of the most memorable scenes I've seen in, in the show. And seeing it on the page... As yeah. depicted by Yasuhiko, I thought was really masterfully executed. Yeah. I, truth be told, I love those scenes. I'm a sucker for those scenes where the the enemies, you know, meet for the first time and they they just ratchet up that that sense of tension for the for us the watchers for the us the viewers because we know that again, like at any moment, this could just go bad, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, one of the scenes that automatically came to mind was in Spider-Man uh, Homecoming, that one scene where oh, um, yeah. Tom Holland is in the car, and he, well, he goes to, um, I forget her name, but he goes to the girl's uh, house that we're going, that he's going to the dance to, and the door opens, and it's like, oh, shoot. That's the vulture. Adrian Toomes is her dad. Yeah, <laughs> you know that, and that's such a that's such a hit to the gut when we uh, when I first saw that in the movie, and then they get into the car together and they're just driving to the homecoming dance, and like this girl is just giving out all these bits of information, and then you just watch as the gears turn in the vulture's head as he realizes, oh, this guy is Spider Man, and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then that last scene at the end where she goes into the homecoming dance and he goes, I need to talk with him. I need to talk with your date for a little bit. And he's just like, you know, everything that happened before here, before this, okay, I get it, right? But anything after this, if you come after me, I'll kill you. I'll kill everyone you love. And like, (laughs) it's such a menacing scene. And it just made me love... um, michael keaton in that moment i was just like oh man that's such a great scene yeah it really was like i said i'm a sucker for those moments yeah yeah same here man i I feel like i have trouble thinking of other examples but that scene from spider-man yeah yeah that scene in spider-man and this one get done very often yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. see that's why uh i was not a huge fan of uh you know that last Spider-Man, um, Far From Home, because it no did way not home? have a scene like that. Oh, No Way Home. Sorry, No Way Home. Yeah, it needed yeah. more of that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Totally. Yeah. Okay, moving on to section five. Let's do it. To Bright's absolute and unending consternation, Amro barely makes it back in time for White Base's departure from the colony. The crew is ready for a big space battle, and everyone's wearing a normal suit. Whitebase leaves port, escorted by Cameron's shuttle. Whitebase's mobile suits are all standing by, ready to serve as anti-aircraft batteries, essentially. The Xeon forces launch their Rickdoms, and it's a game of chicken. They fly by Whitebase, but don't fire. 
the tension continues to build up as White Base nears the edge of Side Six's airspace. At the end of it, right before the battle begins, Mirai tells Cameron she's thankful for what he's done and bids a kind farewell. His shuttle flies past White Base's bridge, and the two of them are able to look at each other as they pass. A fierce battle ensues against the outnumbered White Base. Side Six has news crews capturing all of the footage and broadcasting the battle to its citizens. It's almost presented like a sporting event. Everyone in the colony is watching, from Temre to Shar and Lala. Amro is on a tear and turns the tide of battle on his own. Temre is too excited after watching the footage, and while prancing around in celebration, he falls down the stairs of his home. All right, so another big battle sequence here in this chapter. But my first question to you, Albert, is during that opening sequence, did you think that Cameron was about to die? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the entire time, there's just, uh, yeah, there's just that sense that from everything that they've set up so far, um, it, it almost feels obvious that he should die in that, yeah. in that moment right like yeah what, what's more fitting than that but i do appreciate that they subverted my expectations by having him live like yeah, i don't surprising think, yeah i don't think that he's any less of a person for 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 surviving, surviving. <laughs> <laughs> well i based on everything that we just talked about prior to this where we talked about how you know there are real soldiers that are dying out there and for this guy to be a, a you know he's a fence sitter in a society of fence sitters um mm -hmm. for him to go out there and you know it, as a reader it almost feels like it's obvious that the outcome of it should be that his final sacrifice redeems him once and for all right mm -hmm. but but again, um, that that doesn't always happen in life, and I think Sometimes it's realized surviving through sheer dumb luck. Yeah, exactly, and that's the thing. He he didn't know he was going to survive. I'm sure even in his mind there was a part of him that was pretty sure he was going to die too. So yeah. it's not like his sacrifice was any less for it. It's not like he went into it thinking, "Oh, if I die because of this, <laughs> they called my bluff." <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah i just wanted all the credit and glory for like offering to to, to sacrifice myself without the actual sacrificing of my life yeah <laughs> right mm -hmm. uh, like i imagine as the ship's burning up he was like god ah, dang it they <laughs> they called me on it and they won yeah <laughs> uh, yeah but i did also enjoy that moment where he's like looking through the glass at mirai uh, mm -hmm. Or trying to just catch a glimpse of her as, you know, she's she's about to do the real hard work of, like, putting her life on the line, right? Because mm -hmm. once they get past that certain point, that's where the real danger starts. And it's, there's something poetic about that moment where they separate from one, one another. Like, I don't know if we're going to see him again, um, but if that is the last time that they ever see each other, it's it's a pretty poetic way for them to have a farewell even though it's not even really a farewell because it's not like again at this point it's not like she 
has any feelings for him. It's not like she, uh, you know, it's not like the, this gesture was even the thing that won it for her, won him back to her or whatever, right? It's yeah. It, they they just kind of have this moment of understanding and they go their own ways. Mm-hmm. I love that portrayal of it, right? Where again, not everybody ends up with their happy ending. Not everybody rides off into the sunset. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes we just keep living. Yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely real. You know, it feels that's very it feels real. real. Yeah, that's super real. I also got to say, I love these little details that are just baked into the into the story where this colony is a neutral colony, but they have like designated airspace. Yeah. So, you know, it's like not really something that I would have considered in outer space, but by treating, by treating these, by treating space as an ocean, it kind of makes sense. I feel like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it it does make sense. And I I I feel like treating, treating it like an ocean gives it gives the whole story uh i don't know it's just the detail that brings it that gives it added uh re- maybe not realism i guess yeah i guess you could say realism just a detail that makes the story feel like yeah it's logical and, and gives you uh this sense that a lot of things have been thought out you know just mm. the the world building of it is is nice yeah what you were saying earlier about that scene when they uh look at each other through the the windows of their ships I do think that's a really well executed scene also because of the way that it's sort of uh, decompressed where you you get like these bigger panels and multiple panels just focusing on that moment, really extending it for all intents and purposes as a reader. I think that's a really effective way of just stretching out time like that because everything else that happens in the battle is just so fast paced and the stuff leading up to the battle even that's a little bit fast-paced because you get the sense of uh the ship traveling away from the colony but that moment when his shuttle does a little flyby past the bridge of white base it it takes up quite a few panels so it extends that moment and I, i think that's yeah that that's what makes it a beautiful moment yeah 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 and i will also say that the the way that this entire scene plays out where you know it's it's about them white base leaving this neutral neutral zone and the like warfare aspect of it where they're surrounded by their enemies who are just waiting for that moment for you to uh, cross an invisible line in space before they yeah. just blast the crap out of you. Yeah. And, you know, they're being in this position where they couldn't stay on this station indefinitely because, you know, the the people have orchestrated this plan to drive you out. And, and as a reader, you're just in this position where it, it's just a good way to build tension because how do they get out of this, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it it kind of reminds me of like old submarine movies where where they do that where you know it's about how there's an invisible enemy and um you know it's it's how do you outsmart them 
and those are those are hard scenes to write because i think a lot of people just resort to like some sort of deus ex machina or something where it's like yeah uh, we're gonna turn on this laser that (laughs) is emp that shuts everyone down and then we're just gonna cruise on through (laughs) yeah you know a simple solution to what seems like a complex situation yeah exactly so i do appreciate that a little bit more thought is put into it and again the the that uh they invest so much in the pacing of it because for 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 a scene like this it really is about the pacing that mm-hmm, pacing mm-hmm. is what is directly what builds the tension for them mm-hmm. you know and slow playing it is is absolutely the way to do it yeah you know what you made me think of when you just brought up submarines a moment ago What's you that? made me think of space battleship yamato I'm specifically thinking about the remake from several years ago, Space Battleship Yamato 2199. That anime is another uh, space opera. It doesn't really have mecha in the sense of like robots. They just have really advanced uh, starfighters, you know, kind of like in Star Wars or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's a show that really treats space like the sea to the point where there actually is well, number one, the main ship is a literal uh, battleship from World War II. <laughs> you know that it's in the title right there, yeah. but it's flying through space after they've made some modifications to it. But there's there's even uh, this series of episodes or a story where the the ship runs into a space submarine, <laughs> and what I mean by that is this enemy spaceship has the ability to sort of traverse or disappear into this pocket dimension and it sticks out like this sort of periscope to to figure out where the enemy ship is <laughs> launch torpedoes after it exits the pocket dimension it it's kind of confusing to describe it but yeah that i thought that was pretty clever it yeah. it's it works better than whatever uh, nonsense it sounds like i'm spewing but in, in viewing <laughs> The show, I, I think it, it actually comes off as pretty threatening. Right, right, right. I uh, I did have a question, though. Uh-huh. So that last scene where Amaro's dad falls from uh, the stairs? Yeah. Am I right in reading that as uh, as his death? I think you are. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's... it's it... I think it looks like his uh, hand stops moving, so it feels like it's implied that yeah, he uh, broke his neck or... Uh, I don't know. I think he's dead. Yeah. I feel like it, it is somewhat ambiguous. I bet you uh, a really optimistic reader could probably read that and be like, oh, he's just unconscious. <laughs> it's the same reader who reads the end of uh, Batman The Killing Joke and says... <laughs> Batman choked out the Joker. <laughs> it takes the same power, like level of imagination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like he's dead. I'm uh, trying to think yeah. about uh about the anime. I can't remember how it played out in the anime. If if it was the same scene as this, I I really I honestly don't remember. But I feel like in the manga, to me, on page two hundred seven, those last few those last three panels really like those last 
that that whole page honestly it's like you see him fall you see a panel of the actual impact yeah. and then uh all these dogs in the neighborhood start barking and then you get a panel of him lying on the ground saying you know just moaning a little bit with his hand in the air and then the panel after that is he stops moaning and then his hand falls down to the ground and then we zoom out again and we hear a bunch of neighborhood dogs barking again yeah uh so to me it feels like pretty symbolic that he's dead i it'd be hard for me to believe that he was uh unconscious yeah i mean again it's a thing where the pacing is the thing that sets up the expectation for you right so Mm -hmm. for them to be to spend so much time and energy um and panels focused on him falling down the stairs and then eventually on those last two panels where you see his arm just go limp like that Mm -hmm. right yeah Uh, that that level of focus implies it 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 tells the reader to imply I, I think it's safe to imply that that's you know the final motion that he's ever going to make mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um it's it's really interesting because i do think uh I, I i hope i'm not remembering this wrong but in the previous panel or previous section when amuro is uh stops by his dad he drops off like a fruit basket or something and I forget if I don't think he actually says it, but I think he might have like thought it to himself or something in a in a caption where he goes, "This is the last time I'm going to see you." Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and it's for this to be his end is it's really it. I mean, this is pathetic if you ask yeah. me to, to die yeah. like this. But to think that for this to be his end and for Amuro to tell himself, "I'm never going to see you again." Um, like there there's no winners here <laughs> like there's nothing uh, like i can't tell myself that well he at least made some sort of peace with his dad before he rode off but but <laughs> I, I think in large part it's safe to say that in that moment that he saw his dad the way he was he it's like we were saying earlier he, he already acknowledged that whatever his dad was wasn't there anymore yeah. Right. In 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 a way, the war had already taken him, and by telling himself, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna come back and see you ever again," mm-hmm. um, and for this to be like the final period on him, it it totally makes sense. Um, I mean, it's 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 kind of makes me feel gross, but but it makes sense. Um, yeah. That, this guy it's okay, is, man. You don't have to feel gross. It's it's a work of fiction. <laughs> I'm aware that it's a work of fiction, but you know, we're, art is evocative by nature. So I, true, I think true. that its ability to make me feel gross is in, in, in unintended purpose. So mm-hmm. I don't look at it and go, these are just scribbles on paper. Why should I feel anything? Well, <laughs> I mean, well, you know, when we listen to a piece of music, that's you know those are words and uh notes that have no inherent meaning unless you apply meaning to it so right um you know there's nothing wrong with feeling something for for a piece of work agreed agreed that's uh what art is all about exactly exactly one of the other things i wanted to mention from this chapter is the fact that the whole battle is broadcast to the colony 
Mm. And all these, you see these little scenes of people in the colony, not just Amro's dad, but uh, random people at bars or wherever they are, restaurants. Uh, you see Shar and Lala watching. And then we even get snippets of the broadcast reporting on the action. And it, it's, it's almost kind of strange, like, to to think that uh, people are just watching this. And then at one point, uh, there's an explosion. And then someone, one of the spectators in the restaurant is like, oh, they got one. Which side? You know, like, it's like, which yeah. side scored the touchdown or whatever? You know, it's like something uh, strange about watching a real battle and and then almost treating it like a novelty or something well a couple of things i I do think that we are kind of in that era now where people yeah treat war as 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 something to be observed uh in spite of how uh destructive it is and uh how many lives are ruined like you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I follow like things in Ukraine, uh, pretty closely. You know, just in terms of like news reports, but mm-hmm. because of the YouTube algorithm, it definitely sends me things where, and again, this is kind of a gray area, but there are some uh, channels where it's like, oh, I, I don't know, if this is really news anymore because they, they do treat it kind of like a sport or something right or war porn yeah exactly exactly right so there is something about it that's um that's on une- that makes you feel uneasy for sure um so i'm there I, i've definitely had times where i've had to stop and think like well is is this particular channel like is this actually informative or is this like just is it trying point? to entertain you and titillate yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I was also going to say that it reminds me of this uh, story that I remember hearing. It, it was uh, from the Ken Burns Civil War documentary. And one of the things that they were saying was in one of the early battles of the Civil War, people were, you know, people were pretty treating it pretty lightly because they just thought that this was going to be something that was going to be over in a matter of, you know, months as opposed to like the years that it would take. Right. Yeah. So um, the anecdote was about how in one of the first battles of the civil war, there were people who came and like set up uh, like picnics to watch the first battle play out. They, they actually showed up on the, on the, on the peripheries of this battlefield where where this mayhem took place so you know i don't think it's necessarily a thing where technology has just made it so that we're worse i mean i think we've always been there's always been a part of us that you know a part of people that has been like that Mm -hmm. and and i just think that that's uh it's it's a representation of people that make sense yeah it's not necessarily a great representation of people but it's yeah. one that makes sense you know yeah that is true that is true yeah. Shar and lala at least as they're watching it they're they're more watching it from an analytical perspective and i think there's also some significance in seeing those scenes because that's when i think we realize that Shar is fully aware that 
the pilot of the Gundam has new type abilities, uh, which have been hinted at uh, in previous volumes. Uh, I mean, there was that whole volume before, there was that incident before the flashback arc started when White Base landed in Jabro and the scientists, the Federation scientists there did these experiments on Amuro, you know, that there's, there, they were laying some groundwork for his new type abilities. And then uh, now in this volume, I feel like the new type stuff is coming back to the forefront with Lala and then with um, Char pointing out how the Gundam's pilot, the Gundam pilot's new type abilities are really turning the tide of the battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, yeah, as we get later in, in the volume, that, that comes up into even more explicit display. Yeah. I feel like up to this point, uh, the I guess the uh, the the new type as as a phenomena is something that they've sort of teased uh, you know here and there, but well, I think we kind of have an idea of where that plot point is going to go, and mm-hmm. again, this is this is the the turning point moment where that domino is finally beginning to to fall and we're going to see the fruits of that uh plot point get yeah. realized you know yeah mm-hmm. ready for section six let's do it white base receives orders to go to texas colony which we last saw during the flashback arc texas is now a dilapidated shell of its former self badly damaged and abandoned However, the Federation has reports that Shar is there, so White Base is sent to smash the Xeon project underway there. Again, there are details that even Bright isn't privy to, but he simply obeys his orders. Shar and Lala are in a horse-drawn carriage in the colony, and we learn that they are with some representatives of the Flanagan organ, which is some kind of Xeon new type group. Lala is a powerful new type, their superstar. However, another special new type they have is a man named Chalia Bull. (laughs) Another funny Gundam name. (laughs) (laughs) He will be sent out to deal with the Federation intruders to demonstrate what new types are capable of and to show the results of his training. Bright finalizes the plans to enter the colony, and it's going to be up to their mobile suit force to complete the mission. The core boosters have no role here, but Slugger wants to participate. Sela does, too, and she tells everyone that she grew up on, in Texas Colony. It's determined that Slugger and Sela can go out in the gun tank with Hayato. All right, so feels like this chapter was a lot of setup after the uh, intense action of the previous section. Mm-hmm. So was there were there any moments in this chapter that jumped out at you? Hmm thinking about it now and i guess well the one thing that does jump out at me is this character um you know the new character of uh what's his name shala shalia bull Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like they do commit like quite the amount of space to this guy and i mean they do a good job of giving everybody a pretty unique look but this guy does uh look pretty different from most of the characters that we've seen like i wouldn't say that he's 
necessarily drawn in a way that look makes him look like a bumbling idiot, but <laughs> but just he, the fact that you said that makes me think you think he was a bumbling idiot. No, no, not at all. Like I, I actually thought he was rather noble looking. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you know, you know, he so kind of maybe it's just the mustache, but he reminds me of a younger, thinner Rambaral. Yeah, 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 I can see that. I can see that, and um, yeah, so. I guess that's the thing that keeps it fresh is whenever they introduce these new characters, it's it's a matter of, oh boy, what's this guy gonna do? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um it's it's a question of is this guy gonna be just a momentary sort of threat to them? Is he gonna be this uh you know, or is he gonna be this long lasting existential game changer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I'd have to ask. I, yeah. But yeah. He he does feel like he's committed to the cause. He's I don't know what else, how else to describe it, but he's he's a believer, you know. He yeah, he's totally yeah. about the the Zeon Kool Aid. Totally, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One man. of the things that uh, stood out to me was the scene early on with Shar and Lala when they're riding in the colony and then they come across this, it looks kind of like a castle of some sort. And then Shar is talking to the people from the Flanagan place. And, and then he looks, he turns around and then Lala's uh, not next to him anymore. And just looks, he, he looks around and then sees her prancing around in the, in the castle. Like she's just this free willed, person who likes to explore new places or something mm-hmm. it's kind of i mean i feel like from anybody else it would feel pretty undignified yeah to to like do that where you know you're technically your commanding officer or whatever you want to call char is like he's he's there kind of on your behalf talking to the people that uh i guess the scientists that are that are uh training her or whatever doing their tests and stuff and then all of a sudden she's just like playing in the sand or not sand but like on the you know what i mean she's just off to the side doing her own thing like just the fact that she's playing at all exactly exactly yeah there it's it's an interesting contrast because it's the idea that this girl is a girl you know and i don't mean that in like a condescending sexist way like i mean she's like literally like a child or maybe a teenager, right? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd say she's a teenager. I'm pretty sure she's officially... No, I'm definitely sure she's a teenager. I don't remember officially what her age is, but yeah, I think it's one of those anime things, right, where everybody's always younger than what you would expect them to be. So that's why yeah. uh, Amuro... I think, I think he even says it in one of the other chapters that he's 16, 16 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is yeah. unbelievable because I, I have... a of all the most unbelievable things in Gundam, it's not the giant robots. It's not the colonies. To me, it's the fact that a 16-year-old is this battle-hardened <laughs> pilot. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you're about to be uh, uh, outdone because this girl might be younger than him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? But, but that's the thing. The way that this scene is uh played out it, it just drives home the fact that this this young woman this girl this teenager is 
their ultimate weapon, right? Like mm-hmm. she has this ability uh and this potential for devastation, but her instincts are still so childlike. Yeah. And, and for it to play out that way, it this is like a trope that I've seen before, like the 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 the, the most clear example that I can think of. And it you know this this is obviously probably the the source material for for a lot of the things uh for a lot of stories that have similar tropes uh but the the one example that i can think of is like firefly how um what's it called uh the girl in firefly is supposed to be yeah this like loopy uh you know a brain damaged young woman but she's also just this massively dangerous killer you know yeah yeah, yeah it, it's it's that contrast of having someone be have all this power but not necessarily have the maturity or the self-control to to wield it adequately mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah but um yeah she's she's clearly got a whole lot going on even if she does you know prance through a castle like her there's so many scenes where she just shows how astute she is and how observant she is. Yeah. And that's the thing that makes her scary. That's the thing that makes her dangerous is that even though she's someone who just wants to be, again, in, under any cir- other circumstances in a different universe, she'd just be a kid living mm-hmm. the life of a kid. Um, mm-hmm. Because because of war what ends up happening is people end up using whatever resource they have at their disposal and that includes uh you know the potential of young people who in any other condition uh in under any other circumstance could take that same talent and use it for way more constructive purposes yeah totally yeah any other thoughts on this chapter, Albert? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I'm good to move on to the next section if you are. Okay. So section seven. Charlie a bull piloting the mobile armor known as Browbro. Not Fraubo. Browbro. <laughs> Browbro. <laughs> Gotta love those Gundam names. <laughs> He's on a search and destroy mission against the white base mobile suits. Visibility is poor in the colony and there are mines and booby traps hindering the Federation. Amaro and company move in cautiously. The gun tank gets separated from the rest of the group due to the poor visibility, but fortunately, Sela is familiar with the layout of the colony and helps navigate. The Brow Bro attacks the mobile suits and manages to destroy or at least incapacitate a few of them. It's got advanced firepower and Amro's instincts or new type abilities help him warn some of his allies and save them from death. There's some fierce chaotic fighting. Shar in his new Gelgoog mobile suit observes from a distance. So again, another action heavy chapter, which makes sense after the uh, previous chapter was, was a lot of uh, dialogue and, and character setup and discussions. Uh, now we have a whole bunch of action where we see 
the brow bro it's just a funny name man <laughs> it's fun to say yeah it, and it's even funnier because it rhymes with frau bo <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but yeah we get to see it in action and it's just doing all sorts of crazy damage yeah i mean there's not really much to get out of this except we get to see uh what's his name uh charlie bull yeah charlie bull we get to see him in action and you know he it's 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 that anime thing where whenever the new character comes in he he's gonna be the one that's like i'll prove to them that i'll be the one that can destroy them yeah exactly and then they will like you know drape me in glory you know, mm-hmm, I'm the mm-hmm. young and upstarting, like up and comer that no one that people are gonna uh, take for granted. But I'll I'll prove it to them. And yeah. Inevitably, they don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of the details I do really like, uh, and I f- forgot to mention it in the previous chapter, but when Sela is in the gun tank. When she, when she first gets in the gun tank, she has that brief little flashback when she thinks to the time, the last time she was in a gun tank, which was when she and Casval were little kids and they were escaping Zeon, or not Zeon, they were escaping the zombies. Um, that was really early in the flashback arc. You know, she was holding her little pet, her pet kitten, uh, and they were and they were riding the uh, gun tank with Hamon piloting it while Shar ended up using the guns to take out some enemies. So she, like there's a little flashback to that. And then here in this chapter uh, on page 265, 266, she, she gets caught in some more reminiscing, thinking back to like what the layout of the colony is. And then you get this full page splash of the Diablo homestead in its glory um, mm-hmm. with the little grave markers for her mother and her brother and, and Lucifer, her cat, in, in the yeah. foreground, like that. Yeah. Like those are those are the moments where they don't necessarily do anything to advance the plot. But I just like that there are these character moments in there where you get this interiority from Sela because it makes sense that those are the kind of things that would be going through her mind, even though they're in this deadly situation on a mission. She can't help but think about the place where she grew up because it's been all these all this time since she was there and just had a powerful impact on her the mm-hmm. uh, one other thing that i wanted to mention is um uh what's i keep forgetting his name charlie charlie yeah. oh it's such a weird name <laughs> it is <laughs> yeah but his uh his un uh his ship is pretty interesting looking too um, mm-hmm. like it's it's not a Gundam unit or a Zabi like like Zaku. Yeah, it's not Zaku, it's not a mobile suit. It's technically yeah. uh, mobile armor. That's what they classify them as. Yeah, but it just looks like a ship, right? Yeah, or... it it looks really alien because of the way that uh yeah it looks it like almost a pod. looks like yeah like some kind of pod or like a baked potato when you slice it up into yeah yeah, yeah. quadrants yeah yeah but it's got these tentacle kind of things hanging out from it 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 really does look alien and bizarre yeah it's but it's creative too because those those tentacle things are these deadly weapons that just fly around and shoot things and it's really hard to dodge them so they've never the federation guys have never faced anything like it 
and yeah. he just makes mincemeat out of some of them. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a fun addition. It just it's just this reminder that they're constantly just playing around with the, all these designs just for you know for the heck of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shall we move on to the next section? Let's do it. Section eight. Amro makes the decision to draw away the brow bro and fight it one-on-one in order to protect the lives of his friends. Chalia Bull eagerly welcomes the challenge. Amro is in for the fight of his life, but he's learning to trust his instincts to somewhat predict or dodge the enemy's attacks. Job John's gun cannon and the gun tank are the only Federation forces left functional, and some enemy mobile suits come after them. Meanwhile, from a safe distance, the Flanagan people and Lala are monitoring the fighting. Much of the rest of this chapter is devoted to the exciting battle between Amro and Chaliabul. We also get some internal monologues from Chalia and learn a little bit more about his backstory. But ultimately, Amro is inevitable and destroys the Browbro, bringing an end to Chaliabul. Thoughts on this chapter, Albert? Um... I mean, it's pretty fun action scene just watching uh, Chalia Bull's ship just do all sorts of damage and move in all these weird ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do feel like in this section, we do get quite a bit of his interior monologue and we're just watching him as um, he flashes back to moments in his life, which, again, this is kind of a weird... <laughs> uh, you. Uh, maybe use of the character where like for all intents and purposes he's a throwaway character but for us to mm-hmm. get like his um you know defining moments in his life that led up to this moment for him to see himself as um you know the hero of his own story uh yeah, up until yeah. the moment where he's uh well killed by the gundam yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. uh I, it's it's uh i think that's an interesting way to um to tell this story where again like you have all these chapters dedicated to all these different characters and then right smack dab you get this one chapter for this one guy and he dies in it and that's it that's all you ever hear from him yeah <laughs> yeah uh, one of his proudest moments was getting personal orders from giran zabi the the dictator <laughs> yeah it's like, yeah yeah there's there's well, something weird about like holding that like the fact that he holds that as one of his crowning moments in life i mean i i get that he was drinking the zeon kool-aid but as an outside observer if if i met somebody who told me that he was proud of of getting a medal from hitler or something uh i'd, I'd question everything in his life yeah definitely like there are a lot of people who look at that or or who have questionable decisions where they follow pretty gross people and and then they enshrine for themselves the moment that you know <laughs> this one particular person did this or did that or acknowledged them or something like i look i'm not going to say that there aren't moments in your life where acknowledgement by someone that you hold in high regard isn't worth something especially if it's you know someone like your parents or like 
uh, you know, a teacher or, you know, someone that you care about. Okay. I get that. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when you're, yeah, someone, someone like, like, uh, you know, Giran Zabi, that's, uh, I, that's not something I can really justify. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way to. Yeah. You might as well say like, you might as well say something like, "Oh yeah, I, I've been waiting my whole life life to get the uh, uh, approval of, you know, <laughs> that one meth addict down the street, and you finally <laughs> gave it to me." <laughs> it's like, really? You know, like, aim higher, buddy. <laughs> like, you can do better. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> And then, well, but I guess that's the point, right? Because at the end of this, this guy ends up dying for his cause. And maybe in his mind, that's the greatest thing that he can ever do. But <laughs> but guess what? Like, to those of us reading it, you you definitely wasted your life, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, what's even sadder, and what's even sadder is even towards the end of this guy's, like, battle, when he's about to die, even he realizes that he 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 was building himself up and he was like looking at uh this empire that he served and this empire gave two farts for this guy you know yeah. like they just sent him out to be a test uh that they could pig. use yeah a guinea pig and he's just like having this existential dread where he was like i i deserve better than that i was willing to die for you and you just threw my life away for nothing yeah. you know <laughs> But but again, that's kind of the point of these wars where, um, and, and I do think this is something that if you put it in the perspective of, you know, uh, uh, post-World War II Japan, where so many of their soldiers in the, in the final days of the war, yeah. like so much of their life had been taught, they'd been taught, they'd had this belief instilled in them to like, live and die for the emperor because the emperor is their god and Mm -hmm. only to realize again that this emperor like doesn't care about you right maybe if you're lucky if you want to consider it lucky you get like a plaque or something your parents get a medal like good for you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but yeah it's it's a it's a it's an interesting moment of self-awareness of stepping back and looking at this character as a stand-in for the most zealous kinds of soldiers and you kind of wish that they had all come to this realization like much earlier than this point yeah way earlier (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, his real his epiphany does him not one iota of good yeah yeah and considering all the harm that he's done up to this point um that's even worse (laughs) yeah you know it's better it's well i mean he was terrible anyway so like i don't care that he gave up his life and had this moment of existential dread before he died if anything i celebrate that but (laughs) yeah but you know imagine the people that didn't have to die the people you didn't have to kill if you had just realized that you know this this one great quote unquote great guy that you were serving is making you do all this awful stuff with like promises of of uh you know glory or not even not even you know a grand glory it's it's the glory of like i personally will give you glory which is kind of meaningless 
Mm-hmm. But it's the glory of losers. Yeah, yeah, totally. This guy totally deserved to die obscurely as a guinea pig. I hope they piss on his grave. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably nothing of him to bury after that explosion. Uh, then I hope they piss on his ashes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they piss on his ashes and they like blend it and make a slurry out of it and uh, <laughs> you know use it to clean someone's car with. I I don't know. <laughs> he got turned into shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> Ready for section nine? Let's do it. This is a, another action-heavy section. We return to the gun tank and gun cannon as they face off against the Xeon mobile suits. We get an impressive extended action sequence of the gun tank's fighting abilities and Slugger leads his crew in destroying multiple bogeys. After some intense fighting, the rest of the Zaku's retreat, Slugger reminds everyone that their mission is to smash the Xeon project so they continue searching. Amaro is too far away after his fight with the Brow Bro. While he's gathering himself, he senses a surprise attack and dodges a blast from Shars Gelgoog. <laughs> That's another funny name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. As they engage in combat, Lala decides to exit the safety of the monitoring truck and begins to head out on foot towards the fight. All right. So this was kind of fun just to see the gun tank in action. Yeah. It, it's always been recognized as this really outdated old machine. I mean, uh-huh. we saw it in the flashback sequence. So this is a unit that has been in operation or active service for like over a decade at this point, And it's fighting against these more recently developed mobile suits that are just more agile and maneuverable. But with Slugger leading the way, it's able to do quite a bit of damage. And the way that it's depicted really is exciting and and thrilling and just well drawn. I also enjoy the fact that it's just, you know, for so much of the book being about Amuro and, you know, about his personal story of becoming this hero, like it's good to see the other people get a moment to shine right mm-hmm. absolutely so, and when you mentioned that uh you know the gun tank you how how it's this older piece of equipment and it it gets this moment to you know prove mm-hmm. itself right it it makes me think of like times that we've had discussions where we've talked about how well there's this uh basketball player on this one team who's a older guy so we have to root for him yeah, because, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it sort because of had feelings old, of that to root for old yeah. people <laughs> yeah, exactly right we you know just any opportunity to to cheer for um you know someone to remind young people that someday someday you'll be old too but until then uh, you know this old person can still beat you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Um. Yeah. The battle between um uh, the Gal Gal what's how do you pronounce it? Gelgoog. Gal- the Gelgoog and uh, the Gundam is is a pretty awesome battle. Um. You know this is this is kind of every time we sh- see Shar and uh, uh Amaro go at it, it's it's ballet. You know, 
it's just mm -hmm. all kinds of fun but it's again this building of this tension because you know the the federation has just been through this pretty crazy battle and they're kind of worn um so you know going into this they're they're fighting a fresh char he and mm -hmm. and he's got I, I don't know if this is right or not but the gelgoog is newer right it's yeah, yeah. this is the it's first time we've seen, we've seen it yeah, it's an upgrade uh, over the Zaku. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of things going against them in this battle. Um, but then, you know, Lala gets... Uh, her, her powers are kicking in, and she heads off in that direction towards the battle, and yeah, that's... Seems like a pretty dangerous idea. I wouldn't run into uh, the maw of uh, two giant robots trying to destroy each other. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just uh, basic survival instincts. I mean, call me a coward, but I want to live. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, shall we move on? Sure, let's do it. Section ten. Char and Amro battle it out in their mobile suits as Lala continues to head towards them. Amro and Char's battle rages on, and Amro is beginning to get anxious as he realizes his energy reserves are running low. Amro's Gundam take, ends up taking extensive damage as the battle continues, and he stumbles into a minefield, setting off a chain reaction. Amidst the chaos, Lala arrives at the worst possible time, this should be the most opportune moment for Shar to finally end Amro, but seeing Lala, Shar knows the danger she's in and shifts his attention to protecting her. As the destruction rages on, Amro and Lala reach out instinctively to one another with a psychic link. Shar is able to get Lala away to safety and has someone come out to take her away, but the time he spent with Lala has given the Federation a chance to regroup. Shar gives the order to withdraw, telling himself, that the Gundam is severely damaged enough. As the rest of the Zeons retreat to the Zanzibar, Shar stays behind. This is the first time in a long time that he's been in the colony that was his home for so long. There is a hole in the atmosphere that threatens all life on the colony, and all the cattle and horses are driven into a frenzy. Shar takes command over one of the horses and rides off. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's uh, going on here. Uh, like... Not necessarily um, deeply emotional stuff or anything like that, but just in terms of things happening in succession, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, like you said, there's the battle continues and, you know, we, we get this moment where um, the two minds of Amaro and Layla, Lala connect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's just more for 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 foretelling of um you know what's going to happen between these two like if they're kind of the, if they're both the pinnacle of uh whatever new types are and you know the federation has one and the uh principality of zion has one like what's obviously going to happen is going to happen right mm -hmm. yeah i think so yeah um yeah, and then for the battle to come to an end that way, uh, you know, it's just kind of that that bell ringing in, in a boxing match where 
it, it signifies that the round is over. You each go back to your own side <laughs> until we meet again. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, and it's pretty crazy to think that at the end of it all, Shar is just like, hey, you guys go on without me. I'm, I'm going to take this stroll. And yeah, it, stroll down pretty, memory lane. Yeah, it's wild, but um, I do think there's something to the symbolism of it all where all the animals are just kind of going crazy. And just while all this is happening, he just grabs one and he's just such an alpha that he like exerts <laughs> dominance on this one horse. And he's like, you submit to me and it yeah. does it <laughs> and he just rides off it's like i know there are people who like char but that's just it's, of all it's, the char things that he's ever that we've seen him do so far it i still think him uh landing on his feet after that other battle in the previous volume when his his mobile suit gets destroyed and and then uh you know he's falling and then like the ship comes in to rescue him, but he just yeah. lands on his feet. I still think that's the most ridiculously Char thing that we've seen. But this right, one right, has right. got to be number two. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's it's you know for for how in in vogue it is for people to complain about quote unquote you know Mary Sue's like people who are just so naturally gifted and talented that you don't question it at all. It's like. I, I can't help but point to this and be like, look, if anyone likes this and doesn't doesn't have anything to say about that, then I, I don't think you really truly <laughs> understand what a Mary Sue is. Or I don't think that your uh, uh, any arguments that you have against characters exhibiting that sort of perfection, I don't think there's any weight to that <laughs> if, mm -hmm, if you mm -hmm. can still enjoy this without any irony and still complain about that trope. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like I don't complain about the idea of a Mary Sue like rarely if I do. So so when I watch this scene, I'm completely eating it up, knowing that it's intended to be kind of ridiculous. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's meant to be, quote unquote, cool or whatever. Yeah. 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 Another Char moment that I greatly enjoyed in this chapter is the four color pages at the beginning. Uh, when you see him f in his Galgook fighting the Gundam, like there's that scene on the third page uh, of the chapter where he's just twirling the his uh, beam saber. It, it's just so so flashy and unbelievable and then he he charges at amro and then the when you flip the page to page 362 you just get this gigantic half page panel where his gelguk kicks the gundam in the face that that's a iconic shot right there because uh him using his mobile suit to kick an enemy that's something really only he does like there's no no real like practical value to doing that when you can use a beam weapon to really puncture or like mess mess up the enemy but he just straight up kicks people you know because he can it's his version of teabagging <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's gonna do it he's gonna do it he's just gonna jump he's gonna crouch up and down <laughs> just just to show that he can do it He's, exactly oh he did it <laughs> uh, 
Oh man, that's too funny. Were you surprised that he chose to save Lala over finishing off the Gundam? Oh, uh, I don't think so. Like I, I mean, for for all my talk of how you know fiction is evocative and like I am not necessarily like like part of my investment in any work that I read is my ability to you know throw myself into emotionally into whatever it is um is one of those things at least here where it's like okay like the writer chose to show that he's not completely an asshole mm-hmm. you know that he there is someone out there he does care about other than his own personal uh you know personal vendetta uh something he puts above that so you know i don't think it's out of character uh i don't i don't take that as uh you know i'm not outraged by it or anything like that i just think i think i recognize it as an interesting choice and um yeah i'm i'm i want to see how that relationship plays out because clearly uh it, it does feel like up to this point, we, we've talked about Shar as, you know, a sociopath, someone who really doesn't care about anything or anyone other than the personal satisfaction of uh, exacting his revenge, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's the thing about storytelling is uh, to have those priorities change over time to introduce these new elements that allow him to contest whatever his primary goal is it's 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 another method of building pathos into the character because again just in terms of foreshadowing if things play out a certain way um like i don't know exactly what i like i wouldn't bet money on what i think is going to happen but i will say that it gives him it gives char more stakes outside of just being this completely reckless loose cannon who whose singular uh goal of achieving revenge um it complicates that for him and by by doing that it makes him his story more interesting mm-hmm. because there's potential for tragedy now and again back to the previous theme that we've mentioned earlier in the podcast it's if if life had been different if there had been no war like could they have you know could could things between these two characters be different did it have to mm-hmm. be this way mm-hmm. so so there we go so i don't yeah i don't look at that and you know i'm not outraged by it by thinking that's that's not what the real shar would do <laughs> <laughs> he's not real <laughs> well, let me ask you another question then. Do you think Shar genuinely cares for Lala as a person, or do you think he's just thinking about what she can do for him because she's a powerful new type? Ooh, that's interesting. Now that you mention that, uh, that is interesting. You you've thrown another wrench into into my whole thing, and I don't know. You're right. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. like. I mean, if if it goes, but again, that 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 goes back to the whole idea of just 
this story could branch off in so many different ways. So he, yeah, he he could end up truly being the uh, sociopath that we thought he was, uh, the uncaring sociopath that we thought he was. Uh, so so much so that on the field of three dimensional chess, he he understands that he could win against the Federation right here, right now. But mm-hmm. in terms of his larger goal, there is a precision to exactly what he wants in order for for the grand end game to play out. So yeah, that's yeah, I don't know. I I'd have to keep reading, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I there is a part of me that does think that he's Fond might be too strong a word, but she's closer to Char than almost anyone else is. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. Uh, Sayla is probably the one person that he's shown any care to, you know, just by the very fact of him just telling her not to be, to, to leave Whiteface altogether. <laughs> yeah. That's, and, and even then, I don't think he showed any anything like tenderness or care yeah he was just yelling at her yeah it's just a cold-hearted uh do what i tell you i don't want to kill you yeah but and maybe this is just my interpretation of lala's and char's like behavior around each other like i don't think he's quite as cold to her like maybe Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a question of degrees, but yeah. uh, you know, to to whatever degree that he is able to show, you know, tenderness to her, or or care, there's something there. Certainly, something more than uh, I've seen him show to like almost anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. Well, we've uh, got what. Three more books, so to to figure out how that plays out. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, that's definitely something that uh I'll follow up with you as we continue reading the story. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I enjoyed in this chapter was seeing more from Slegger, because I think the series has done a good job of like slowly introducing him along as a part of one of the newer members of the White Base crew, and then showing him as a as an experienced uh combat veteran and then uh yeah like really seeing the gun tank in the previous chapter do all that stuff and then here uh you know he's he's still got his mind on the mission and he he recognizes things battlefield conditions that some of his younger uh subordinates may not recognize like i'm i'm looking at page 387 right now and then that's when they see the explosion that amro set off when he landed on those mines and hayato's like what is that it's big and then slugger's immediately like chain reaction in the minefield either some klutz stumbled into it or the enemy's masking their retreat you know so just having that tactical knowledge and being able to assess the conditions of the battlefield i, I think that's a pretty good way of showing uh his intelligence as a character and as a combat pilot. I do also think that one of the quirks of the translation uh, kind of stands out because they people are constantly calling him Mr. Slugger. Like you see that on page 387 in the last panel. I feel like 
that's one that we're uh, you know calling him Slugger-san makes sense, but I guess they translated that to Mr. Slugger. Just feels weird to me. Like when you're uh, in in a in the military, you don't I don't think you really call people Mr. like that. I don't know. It's yeah. it's a choice they made though. I I think I understand what what it means, but yeah, it it looks weird on paper. Yeah, yeah. That's uh that's a a, a reading uh I guess not factor, but like it's an element of it that I'm not I, I I'm certainly not uh, uh, astute enough to pick up on that because I hadn't thought of that at all. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. You just thought the dude was calling him Mr. because he was older? <laughs> I mean, I didn't even think of that. I was just like, oh, they call him Mr. Slugger. I guess that's just what they call him. <laughs> okay. <You know? laughs> uh, uh, I, also, I'm very easy to... to you're, not easily, very easy. you're not easily stumbled... Or I guess like those kind of things don't really uh stand out yeah, as a stumbling yeah. block for you. I think yeah. so. I, I think I like when I'm reading something, it's very easy for me to like suspend my disbelief. Um, like I think for me, it has to be egregious in order for me to like really stop and be like, wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> uh, what yeah. were you saying? I was just gonna say the other th- moment he gets in in this sequence is where. Uh, Sayla tells him that she wants to head out of the gun tank and, uh, you know, she's pretty vague about it. He thinks that she's crazy, uh, but for whatever reason, he allows her to exit the gun tank and, you know, explore on foot. And he tells her that he won't tell anyone what she's doing, but it's, it's a, very unusual request right because they're in a battlefield and even though the enemies are uh, retreating and stuff it it feels like a bad choice or a dangerous choice to just step outside and (laughs) go sightseeing yeah 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 for some reason i guess his instincts you know allowed it but then we'll see later in the next chapter that he has kai uh follow her so yeah it all comes into play yeah it's it's kind of like that suspension of disbelief that comes when you watch something like Star Trek, where you have to tell yourself, yeah, well, from a command structure point of view, a lot of their decisions don't make the most sense. Like, yeah, but you know, in order for the story to to happen, you just kind of have to tell yourself, well, that's just what they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, shall we finish this off? Let's do it. Okay. Section 11. I get the feeling that Yaz drew Shar gallantly riding a horse just because he wanted to. Because <laughs> it does look pretty glorious. It's, it's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. As Sela heads off on foot, Slugger tells Kai to follow her discreetly. Sela finds the ruins of the Tiablo homestead and reminisces over her life. She finds the gravestones for her mother and for Casval and thinks about the people who have touched her throughout her life growing up, including her cat, Lucifer. Her poignant reverie is broken up by the arrival of Shar on his horse. It seems he too was drawn to this location. 
Their initial reaction to each other is fraught with emotion. Shar is indignant that his sister didn't heed his advice to get out of the service. Sela is upset because Shar has seemingly aligned himself with the Zabis and killed so in and killed so many innocents on his way. Casval swears to her that he didn't kill the real Shar Aznabal, but to Sela, it's just mincing words. Shar goes on to explain his purpose in staying with Zeon, and it's because he's come to believe in an ideology called the renewal of man, which is the core tenet of their father's teachings. Learning about new types seems to have changed Shar at some point. He's adapted some elements of Zeon Zoom Dakin's ideology and modified it. Shar sees the conflict that they're in. He sees it not as one between Earthnoids and Spacenoids, but between old types and new types. Sela tries to debate him by mentioning Whitebase's new type, Amaro, but by inadvertently giving away his name, Shar realizes the boy he met on Side 6 was the Gundam pilot. Eventually, Shar rides off, leaving Sela alone again. Except that Kai was skulking about nearby behind some rubble and overheard just enough to put two and two together. Federation backup arrives soon, but all they can really do is help with recovery operations as Slugger and the others have destroyed the Flanagan installation. Slugger tells the recovery team to search for the Gundam, but to respect and take extreme care with the pilot, whom he refers to as a hero. The volume closes with Bright having a conference with Sela in light of the revelations that Kai has presumably brought to attention. Mirai, Kai, and Slugger are all in the room and can't believe that Sela is really Artasia Som Dakun. Bright doesn't believe she's been working to aid the enemy, but in light of these serious revelations, he confides her he confines her to her quarters. Exhausted by the ordeal, Sela lies down on her bed. And that is where we end. Whew, that was a, an intense chapter. Yeah. A lot of stuff happens. It's pretty crazy ending to, to end on. <laughs> yeah. 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 What do you want to tackle first? Uh, I guess the first thing that that's worth uh, mentioning is I don't know like what Char's mental state up to this point is, but whenever someone starts talking uh, in terms of eugenics, it's never a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's not a sign of a healthy mental state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like. <laughs> It's it's yeah he he had this moment of uh, a revelation personal revelation and I guess on some level it already makes sense because <clears throat> up to this point he's he's established himself as someone who's not a uh, a part of the Federation and really not part of uh, Zeon either even though he he fights for them. Uh, his his bigger game plan puts him really above it all, right? Mm -hmm. To the point where he wants to see the destruction of Zeon. And I don't know if he actually wants to see the destruction of the Federation, but, you know, he doesn't care about the Federation. Uh, as far as he's concerned, they're a means to achieving his goal. Mm -hmm. But this, this new enlightened <laughs> version <laughs> of himself, quote-unquote, it's almost this God complex where he looks at all this death and destruction and he goes, 
I, I'm so far above this that the the machinations of empires is meaningless to me because I'm I'm functioning on a level that's I, I'm functioning like I'm playing for the species basically, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's this idea that I'm you know their 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 empires are are meaningless to me because at the end of the day the thing that's important to me is that uh, the survival not even the survival, the the progenesis of the species, of this new species, that's the thing that matters to me. Yeah. Um, Anytime so, uh, somebody gets super passionate about talking about, it's all for a greater cause, a cause called the renewal of man, you know, that's the kind yeah. of thing that, <laughs> like, anybody else would have uh, their spider sense going off hearing those words. I but would. He's, like, super sincere about back. it. <laughs> yeah i would take a step back yeah yeah that's uh we were we were talking about charlie bull drinking the zeon kool-aid earlier but i don't know if this is any better than that you know yeah yeah he sounds just as crazy yeah he instead of being uh you know the the blind idiot that's just following another idiot off a cliff he wants to be the idiot leading people off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So none of that is is appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I really like how the scene just builds up tension. Like from the very beginning of the chapter when we see Sela, uh go her way of bidding goodbye to the gun tank crew. And then a slugger tells Kai to head out there and follow her secretly. And then there's like that one moment where Sela turns around and she looks back but doesn't see Kai and he thinks, you know, that he's off the hook. And then we don't see him for a while and we just get this extended conversation between Sela and Shar and it's all these dramatic revelations and gives us this enlightening view of Shar's motivations. Then as the conversation continues to uh, intensify, you flip over to page 422, and then you just get this fat spread of Kai just hiding behind some some rubble while uh, Sela and Shar are just having their conversation. And it, it's just intense. Like, he's his uh, heart's beating, and he's just super nervous and scared. He's got his gun ready because... It's Char, man. Like, who knows what can happen? It's. I, I really like how that whole thing plays out with him. Uh, it, it's it's great tension building, and the payoff at the very end of the chapter is. Oh, it's just so worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Uh, there's the other stuff that um gets revealed uh is yeah this is the moment that we've been kind of waiting for you know since mm-hmm. the beginning of the book is mm-hmm. Sela finally being revealed to the rest of them as Artesia you know, Artesia. Yeah. yeah yeah that's it's tough as a reader because you know that she's not she doesn't have any ill intention and that she's been doing the best that she can to do the right thing and for her to be uh I guess not sequestered the right word no uh but isolated uh you know confined to quarters or whatever um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think the thing that 
extra painful about it is the fact that at this point the federation and white base in particular we've we've seen them as this singular cohesive unit and I guess now that we're at the end of this chapter and if you compare it to where they were at the beginning where they're you know just all moving as this well-oiled machine this there's this internal friction now between uh them uh and Sela and I'm sure that there are people who support Sela in this in spite of uh the revelation of her uh true identity so mm-hmm. it, does it you know, make a difference that only the people in that room seem to know, though? Well, I think it makes difference in the sense that if, if someone wanted to mine that for story, for 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 you know plot fuel or whatever, uh, it's it's rich for it's rich for mining because mm-hmm. you know you could tell a story where if they try to keep it under wraps uh the fact that they hide it from everybody else could just do more to fracture them as as a team right yeah or if it comes out um yeah like th- there's there's no good way for it to end um well that, that's not true like if it comes out there's a chance that there's friction there just by the very revelation of that news right and if Mm -hmm. they try to cover it up then there's friction from the cover-up but there's also the slim chance that they just do what leaders you know what what an ideal leader does and 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 you know announce this to everybody um there's a slim chance that it's the kind of action that you would take that would bolster more confidence in your leaders and mm. uh you know uh get more confidence from your from your crew but yeah at that point it's just a matter of what does the writer want to do and how is that going to be portrayed i'm cu- yeah like it's but that that's how you build good tension right because even now now that we're sitting here at the end of this book and we're talking about it and we're uh mulling over what this means uh mm-hmm. you can see that there's uh, a lot of options for drama available mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it's just a matter of which one is uh Yaz gonna take yeah. yeah yeah the way that scene is drawn those uh last few color pages i i really like it man uh just the expressions on uh kai slegger and mirai when Bright is talking to Sela, uh-huh. they're they're just kind of in the background for the most part, but you can really see like the toll that it's taking on them. And Mirai is like totally shocked. I think it feels like out of everyone on the crew, like she was probably the closest one to Sela because you like earlier in the series you did get scenes of the two of them like talking to each other and and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like yeah, even the way that. Yaz draws Slegger and and Kai like two totally opposite uh postures while they're sitting down but just they sell so much of that scene you know yeah. like it it's so well done it totally reads as just i guess frustration and bewilderment because it's 
it's it's like what do we do like how how do we even begin to address this yeah it's it's almost too big news or the news is just too big um and i think i feel like bright says something uh to that effect uh just how you know it's it's just something that yeah here it is on page 437 he says this is a serious no a far too serious revelation yeah and uh that yeah i think that pretty much sums it up you know like they just discovered that this person they thought was uh their crew member this whole time she's actually the daughter of the assassinated leader of the principality that they're fighting yeah which is uh yeah like even even just the fact that she's related to the guy it it has to make them question her her loyalty to some degree yeah of course of course like it would take a grand leap of faith far grander than most people are capable of to just go okay well back to work guys yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah uh I was going to say the, um, you know, one of the other things that I liked about this chapter, you know, it's, it's kind of a downbeat way to end the book though. Like there's, there's a couple of scenes where, so right after Shar and Sela like go their separate ways, kind of the, they kind of make the final period on whatever statement they're, they're making to each other. And there's mm-hmm. this, you know this it's not quite a splash uh splash it's like two panels but it's close up of her face crying and then uh you know you pan out and you see her amongst the debris and she's just <laughs> sobbing like yeah that is pretty powerful right there I, that I, really I thought is that powerful. Was a really well done page and you know just a few go ahead what were you gonna say i was gonna say it feels like that two page two panel page is the moment where she realizes that her brother is gone forever yeah yeah there's no real going back um i I mean but that's kind of what we were saying earlier where the the second that you go from i want revenge on these guys which is already pretty crazy to hey it's bigger than revenge i i believe in the uh the renewal of man uh well, I, I believe in the rising of a master race. Essentially. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. That's a different level of crazy at that point. It's like, oh, yeah, I I thought there was a chance to talk you down from this revenge thing. But now now you're just nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no way to. Oh, yeah, you can't. He's crossed the Rubicon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and a couple of pages later, we have like Amaro's kind of. Actually, this is kind of this is the last time we see Amaro in 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 this book, but mm-hmm. it's after the battle, and you know this this volume is pretty heavy for him because again, this is the one where the revelation. It, it's it's yeah, you have the the stuff that's been going on with his dad, but there's this revelation right now that Shar knows who he is. Like that's uh that's a massive threat to him. You know, mm-hmm. like he was fighting him before, but now it's it's almost like it's personal now. And, yeah. And it ends uh, this last scene with Amaro after this battle where he just he got shellacked, and you see his messed up uh, Gundam 
is just armless. Uh, like mm-hmm. I think both arms are chopped off. It's just a massive wreck, and he's just crying, sobbing inside the inside the uh, inside the hatch. The cockpit, it's, yeah. The cockpit, yeah. So it's just what a way to end this. What a note for him to end on in this uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, in this volume for him to be. He's. It's almost like he was taken to the breaking point emotionally, and now he's crossed it. He's just he's just shattered, because, you know, one he had to deal with his dad and and the revelation of what's happened to his dad, and two, like. Before that, at least he could tell himself that he had. He had the mission of being a pilot to to keep him going, and now even that's kind of taken from him, because. He's been broken in a fight, and yeah, like it's like the damaged Gundam reflects the inner brokenness of his exactly. heart. Exactly, exactly. That's very poetic. I like that. And you know, for anyone who's ever been in in a fight, that moment after you realize that you've lost, though that that walk home or or the quiet moment in your room when you're licking your wounds, that's a that's a rough place to be. <laughs> yeah, it is, man. It's a yeah. dark moment. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the story? No, I I just thought it was a great ending to the book. Um, I'm a it, it's properly properly ratcheted for me, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm on board, and uh, I I, I want to see how Yaz, uh, you know. What, 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 how, how he, how he ends it. I just, I'm looking forward to it, man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One more thing that I, I did want to bring a little attention to briefly is the bonuses in, in this volume, because this one actually has an essay and a two-page pinup by Makoto Shinkai, who is one of the most famous anime directors right now uh he's he directed your name which is one of the biggest anime films of all time it i think it is one of the highest grossing anime movies ever if not it might be like in the top two yeah that's his most famous movie and he did weathering with you the place promised in our early days voices of a distant star children who chase lost voices the garden of words and he's got a new film that's set to release in a couple months from now. I f- forget the name of it off the top of my head. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was really cool to see his essay. And he, he writes primarily about how Yasuhiko uses landscapes in telling yeah. his story, which I thought was pretty good analysis. Like a lot of the other bonuses were just like in previous volumes were just, you know, fun to read. And they were very uh, effusive in just praising the work. Yeah. Uh, which is still fun to to see and and you know I had I gained value from those too but like to see someone write uh, from a more analytical perspective and appreciate the uh, one specific element of storytelling that I don't think people often think about I thought that yeah. was pretty smart yeah 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 it's it's quite observant for him to talk about how the landscape is used as almost its own character, uh, you know, to, to just flush out its own story. And mm-hmm. uh, it's like you said, we don't really think about the setting quite 
too often other than uh as the place where things happen right yeah (laughs) as you mentioned before um you know when we were talking about how what it's like the differentiation between battles in space and battles on the ground and just um how it establishes just a different feel for whatever's going on in that moment like yeah it's it's a pretty good and it's it's quite observant of him to be able to pick up on that yeah like he he goes pretty deep into uh thinking about the space colony cylinders and and like the size of them and how they they work in space and everything it yeah. It's a it's a good read, man. Like I like having this kind of material to supplement the actual comic, and yeah. to see that it's from a, a director that I I really like and respect. Yeah, that was that was treasure, man. There's even yeah. a little uh, line that he writes in his essay that I think uh, really summarizes Gundam as a whole. But what he and it, it's not necessarily directly pertaining to the idea of landscapes, but there's a sentence he writes, and I'll just quote it here, but he writes, there's a whole world inside this work, a coming-of-age story, a revenge story, political fiction, sci-fi, historical fiction, a story of love between individuals and for humanity at large. So hmm. I think with that, he he really did distill and capture like the epic scope of Mobile Suit Gundam. Yeah. And then his yeah. uh his artwork, man, it it's a pretty awesome piece of work. Oh yeah, that spread. That, yeah, uh, it's, it's beautiful. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Love it. It's it's those uh those two side characters that appeared in that one chapter when that colony uh died by the poison gas. Do you remember that yeah, one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The 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 two who we spent mm-hmm. like a couple of pages with them where they're just kind of you know ruminating about what what life will be like uh, exactly when this is all over it's yeah it's a pretty beautiful sentiment only to yeah. be bookended by tragedy <laughs> yeah 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 interesting to see that shinkai essentially drew a tribute to those characters those really minor characters yeah right all right Any other thoughts? nope i think that about wraps it up for volume nine of the origin next week for our next episode we will be continuing some of our honorable mentions in the DC top 25 countdown that we keep talking about. So the <laughs> next, <laughs> the next thing that we're going to read is DC, the new frontier by Darwin cook. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. If anyone has uh, any comments they want to make or any questions, feel free to hit us up on between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or hit us up on our Instagram and feel free to DM us at between the gutters. And if you'd uh, help us by subscribing or, uh, you know, sharing our episodes, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. Or if you could just, you know, give us a good rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on, that would also be appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, guys. See ya, Space Cowboy.